Hello and welcome to episode 169 of the Random Nintendo Podcast. I'm Jason. And I'm Angel. And this episode we're calling the State of Nintendo. Um, In the past week, here in the US, we had the State of the Union. And then in that same 24-hour period, Nintendo essentially gave us their own with their financial report and briefings. So it's not our best title, but State of the Union is probably the most accurate. I mean, like, it works, so we're using it. So so here we are. Because, you know, I mean, we love to combine gaming and politics. Yeah, that's us. You know, every time you listen... Never politics, always gaming, so now we're just going all in on the politics. No, but uh, it just, it was thematically fitting. So really what the episode's actually about, it's just everything that came out of the um, financial report and briefing, excluding impressions of what we're playing near the end of the episode, which are Rocket League and Max and the Curse of Brotherhood. But for the most part, we're talking about like how Nintendo did in terms of numbers and what they what they plan to do in terms of announcements. A lot. Exactly, and that is our show. So thank you very much. We will see you in two <laughs> they weeks. Did time. Good. I'm Jason. He's Angel. No, but um, but yeah, there was a fair number of actually kind of significant announcements. I mean, they announced the Mario Kart uh, smartphone game, Mario Kart Tour. They confirmed the Mario movies, a thing that's actually happening. They talked about their plans for Switch in 2018, and, and we're also going to expand on that a little and talk about a couple Nindy games that look kind of interesting that caught our eye. And there's even a little bit about the good old 3DS in there. So we have timestamps, ramtown.com for everything um, in the blog post for this episode. I, don't, I actually don't know how useful those will be. I mean, they'll be useful for specific topics, but really you can kind of just bucket the state of Nintendo into the state of four different things. I'm sure there is someone out there that is so excited and happy that you did this. That I do the timestamps? Yeah. Oh, I know for sure there's at least one person. Because oh, really? I've been told they appreciate it. It was oh. actually Reddit that got us to start, start doing it like four or five years ago. It's it, it it I mean it makes sense, but yeah, in terms of broader podcasty things, it's really easier to just think of our episode in four big buckets: the state of Switch, 3ds, mobile, everything else. And we're gonna start with mobile because um, Switch got its big news moment last episode and in the last couple of weeks with the direct and the Labo and uh, stuff, and then 3ds got its moment with Detective Pikachu and I, I guess Nintendo Selects. So now it's time for Nintendo Smartphone World to get. A chance to shine, and sure enough, Nintendo right on cue delivered with the surprise announcement of Mario Kart Tour. So uh, I should I should clarify when I say delivered, they barely delivered. They literally gave us a logo and a very vague release window of sometime between this April and next March. So a whole year that could possibly show up at any time. But more to the point, Mario Kart smartphones—it's a thing now. Like, what was your what was your thought when that popped up? Did that seem like the first game they would go to in your mind? It felt like the last to me. I never thought they would ever even try ever. <laughs> I never even thought they would try to do Mario Kart on smartphones. It just seems almost unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of surprising. Uh, it could work. It just doesn't. I mean, I hope Nintendo just does something very outlandish and different than just like, oh, we're gonna use, we're gonna steer with the whole fun itself, like every racing game on the. That, that's my that's my gut feeling. It's like Nintendo's conditioned us to basically work under the assumption that Mario Kart plays well with steering with uh, motion steering because they've done it since the Wii, like Mario Kart Wii. So I feel like them grafting that onto a smartphone game is like the most obvious smartphone decision they can make with any of their games at this point. Whether yeah. that means they should, as you're saying, is a whole other story. But it definitely feels like this is the this is the first time that they may make the game horizontal instead of one-handed vertical. It's the first time I could see them doing t- tilt controls. Unless they go full Nintendo on it and kind of like the Snapchat filter that detects, like, I guess, how fast you're going. Oh, um, yeah. They do something like that where, like, as you're driving, if you have the app open, it'll detect how many miles you've driven. <laughs> well, and you could challenge your friends to drive more miles. Or, you know, basically a pedometer, but, but for, for, driving. for driving. So I can see so and... many lawsuits coming out of that <laughs> so fast. 
Um, and they're like, oh, no fair. You drove to Arizona. Like, I, so basically Pokemon Go, but Mario Kart. You're not you're looking not for walking, You're not looking you're not for anything. Looking, you're uh, tracking your real world movement. It's like you're trying to be healthy, but you're, all you're doing is wasting a lot of gas. And <laughs> or electric, out. depending. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, that's actually kind of, that's kind of interesting because there is a whole category of apps that hook into a port on your car that track, you know, your engine status and various things about your car and your mileage consumption and whatnot. It would be kind of interesting if they gamify or you know Mario what? Kart. I mean, or I guess for all we know, they could just not even go the car route, which would probably wouldn't do because it's more dangerous, and just go the walking route and just be like, all right, when you're walking, you're driving your body and you just pick your little car avatar and you're, I guess, yeah, it's a fitness tracker, but... Represented through Mario Maybe Kart. Maybe this is what quality of the quality of life proc became a weird Mario Kart themed <laughs> app. <laughs> I mean, it's possible. I mean, that's thing that tells about like, hey, let's disguise people doing exercise with Mario Kart. I mean, I mean, kind of how Pokemon Go does sort of it, did sorry. that. Well, I mean, it wasn't even Pokemon intention. Go was weird. It po- just so happened to do it. Pokemon Go is weird because the intention of Niantic, which I always said after factors, is about making people social again. Like everyone's cooped up playing games oh, at home. It. What if you could go outside and befriend people? And it's like. I I guess it worked. I mean, they're like how many friends have you made? Of, I've made so many. I have thousands of Pokemon friends. No, but uh, there is for real like Facebook groups. No, of, seriously, how many people have you actually, actually met? become friends and, with zero? But they're oh. but I've interacted with a lot of people because there are Facebook groups where like you literally they'll be like, oh, there's a you but know there's a raid of? about to start. No, but my boss at work oh. is. And oh. he loops me in on this, and then me, him, and some of the other people at work, we oh. all go to these raids. All the benefits, none of the commitment. Exactly. Exactly. It's like an open relationship, but with Pokemon Go players, yes. But, um, yeah, so I don't, I don't know if Mario Kart tours could give us open relationships with other Mario Kart fans, but, I, I don't, I, like, I don't know what it's gonna be honest. I think on, realistically, it is probably gonna be the handheld or the 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 hold your phone horizontally, tilt to steer. I the name tour kind of suggests to me that it might be like a best of in the same way that Fire Emblem Heroes is a best of because you know like Fire Emblem they put all the different characters from all the different games. Mario Kart Tour you tour through all the games. The flaw with that logic is of course they already do that in every single Mario Kart, but it unless is... tour means that. Instead of diving into, let's make these fictional tracks, they're all going to be slightly Real. based on different parts of the world. That would be cool. So you have an Egypt one, you have a So basically cruise in world, but Mario Kart. Yeah, you're literally touring. That could stuff. work. That could work. I hope whatever they do, I say this every time we talk about Mario Kart, can they please just put the arcade tracks into a Mario Kart already? Like, this one makes the most sense because those tracks are made extra wide to accommodate the steering wheel in the arcade cabinet. And... If if they go the tilt control route with Mario Kart Tour, which I feel like they have to do, that needs you know those tilt controls work better with wider tracks. Like that's why Mario Kart Wii, arguably had the most uh, promoted, shall we say, motion controls because the game was sort of built with that in mind. Said the wire tracks for twelve characters and all that. So I I feel like this would be a good time for them to just reuse those assets. They could also do the world tour thing. That's actually a really cool idea. But then just sort of maybe tack on these at the end. I don't know. It's it's. Well, two things, actually. Two things I want to say. First, I mean, me and Stace, every time we say tour, I keep thinking it, and then we get sidetracked. Every time I hear Mario Kart tour, I think Mario Golf World tour. I don't know why, but I guess because the names are similar, and that just makes me realize how much better Mario Golf would be on a smartphone than Mario Kart would be on a smartphone. They auto-get on that. They auto. And yes. steer towards and steer, golf And steer phone. toward, yeah. Oh. You're, you're, yeah. You're, we're teeing off about, we're teed off about this. Okay, these puns aren't working. Anyway, no, but seriously, like, 
Mario Golf is already a screen that it already uses a vertical space. You don't need a horizontal screen. It can be one-handed. You just tap the meters instead of pressing a button. Nothing in Mario Golf requires actually using real controls. You can do all that with touch and taps. Like, it just seems so perfect. It seems more perfect than Mario Kart. So that was point number one I wanted to make. Point number two. Oh, man. Just imagine the charger being like Smash Brothers something. Oh, God. <laughs> that sounds not enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless it's like... Yeah, fighting games don't really... I mean, have you played any of the or Street Fighter or something? Or Zelda or something. Well, that one's rumored. I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, Wall Street Journal, for those who don't know, Wall Street Journal, about six months ago, uh, put out a report saying Zelda's in the works for mobile, which made Mario Kart all the more surprising. But you mentioned Smash. What are... Have you done any of the, like, Capcom fighting games on handheld? Any, like, those Street Fighters? Do they... Or not on handheld? Pocket on, Puzzle Fighter? Well, that doesn't count. That's a puzzle game. No, I know. I did play, um... The Street Fighter? The Street Fighter one. Does it work on mobile? I imagine it would uh, not. Yeah, I mean... Uh... It works by definition. Um, <laughs> it's just not fun to play without an analog stick and yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, which I feel like like cart can get by. I mean, it works. It. I mean, I'm pretty sure if a kid grew up playing that, they would really enjoy it and not really find any detriment to it. And just then they some, would, someone yeah. who's used to more can't scale back yeah. to that. Yeah. yeah, that is kind of nice thing about Mario Kart, and also again, Nintendo Mario Golf do it. Is that they they don't really have to scale; they just switch over. Like it's it could be just as deep or just as shallow as they want it to be. Like it's all it's none of it re- re- relies on actual buttons. So yeah, it might be a little harsh, but I think I'd rather play the Tiger Electronic version of Street Fighter than it has buttons. Yeah, because that's buttons. Also, now '90s are in, and that's just super '90s. So you're being trendy. Really, I haven't seen any around. I don't know if they're back. Well, the little handheld games are back. I don't know if Street Fighter, Tiger Electronics. Oh no, them, no, just Tiger Electronics. I don't, I don't know if Tiger as a brand is back, but like I can't remember where I was, but I was somewhere and they had all these little tiny games you could buy, like individual like LCD screen ones. Like oh jeez, yeah, yeah, it's back, it's back. They were never good to begin with. No, they were not. But um, yeah, the other it was thing... just some things that people can only get, I guess. I yeah, because the limitations of technology. Yeah. Now it's probably like, wow, this feels so archaic and weird. It's well, like wait, vinyl. No, it it's even, like the recurring Wait, it wasn't vinyl. even limitations. The Game Boy and Game Boy Color route by then. It was just a cost thing. Yeah, that's it was true. Like, Which it, still it was like, oh, you is. could get this Game Boy for over, I don't know, I don't remember how much it cost, over 90, 80 bucks. Something, something like that. Or you could get this Tiger Electron for 10 bucks. And yeah. it's Aladdin. And look at all those pictures, but literally only have like four movements. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess you're right. It was more. I mean, they're, yeah, they were really cheap. But now you can get a smartphone for like fifty dollars, like a decent spec smartphone. So really, probably less. Not like one you would want, but like the whole Android, <laughs> like the, the whole Android One program, which is Google's attempt to bring Android to like developing markets. They're pretty decent spec smartphones for dirt cheap. So, huh. so Tiger is a thing. Doesn't matter. But and the smartphones. <laughs> so they're the tigers of. Essentially, era. yeah, essentially. And and the thing about the smartphones is if you have them, watch this smooth transition back to Mario Kart. If you have a smartphone, you can then play Mario Kart on it, which brings us to the other point I want to make about Mario Kart, which is I'm really curious, assuming it's a normal Mario Kart and not some sort of disguised health app or disguised, like, I'm driving and the game's going to help me crash into a, uh, like, drive off a cliff or something app. I'm really curious what Nintendo's specific end goal is with Tor. And I feel that I feel like what's going to inform us a lot about how the game is structured is that end goal. Like, it's... I mean, we know it's it's Mario Kart, but on your I mean, phone. Profits no, drive I mean, everything. Well, let, yes, at some level it's profits. But let, let me let me explain what I mean. In the financial briefing, uh, Nintendo's president, Tsumi Kimishima, he was reminding folks in the... in the Like, on the slides and in his pre-written remarks that Nintendo's smartphone ambitions have three specific goals. Obviously, like you said, to make money. One of the goals is to be self-sufficient, profitable ventures. 
Another goal, though, is to maximize the number of people who have access to Nintendo IPs, just, you know, expose them to it, some marketing. And then the third one, also kind of marketing, is to act as a funnel to get people to go back to Nintendo's Be shoddy enough to platforms. make people crave the real deal? Exactly. That is the more blunt version of funneling people back to the dedicated console. Yes, exactly. And we've heard all that before. That's nothing new. But what was kind of interesting that he said that I don't remember him saying in the past is he they don't necessarily need every app to achieve every goal. Together, their entire smartphone like strategy would be to hit all three points. But one app may be suited for one aspect, like marketing, and another app may be better suited for another aspect, like just literally just making money. And while they both will overlap a little, they can kind of carry the experiences to each, I guess. And I, if you look back at the apps that they kind of already put out there, you sort of see it already. Like if you look at Animal Crossing Pocket Camp, it's a game that's set up really to – you could play it without spending any money should you choose to do so. You still get a sense of what Animal Crossing is about while doing it though. And that in and of itself can then convert you into ultimately buying Animal Crossing on a Nintendo console. And in fact, one interesting thing Kimishima said in the presentation – was that 75% of Pocket Camp players are women right now. Which, I don't know, to me, sounds exactly like a potential new audience for Switch buying, for, uh, like, to sell the Switch to. And it, it, so then, it's strictly a marketing thing at that point for them. Yeah, it makes a little money, but if you have 75% of women playing Animal Crossing, and you have a whole new bucket of people to now sell the Switch to using Animal Crossing... Seems like your main goal with that app isn't so much about making money up front from Animal Crossing, but more about the bottom line you'll make later off the Switch. So, you know, it, it kind of depends. Like, for, for a sake of conversation, um, we actually have no idea how Animal Crossing is doing financially. We just know that it has 75% of women playing. Uh, but Nintendo did put out numbers and brag about its other successes like Fire Emblem while not talking about Pocket Camp. So I'm kind of thinking as a money-making thing, perhaps it's not doing quite as well as they're hoping. Like, they didn't even say it's it's making money. They just sort of like, hey, did you know most of the players are women? That's kind of a fun fact. So, <laughs> so that to me suggests this is more of a marketing first release, and they are accepting that as what it is. Meanwhile, you have a game like Super Mario Run, which has a required payment if you want to play everything it has to offer. Uh, but there's no timers. There's no gotcha mechanic. If you want World 2 and on, you just pay for World That's true. Which, Which is, you just pay for a service plan, so they're in cahoots with all the cell carriers. Which is kind of annoying for that kind of game. I agree. I mean, it makes sense for Toad Run. I guess you have to download the replay data, but... Right. Yeah, that's... I don't know. It is a little yeah. weird. But but ignoring like ignoring the online odd oddity, just the fact that this game is one where you literally pay to unlock everything. Like, you get a certain limited amount of stuff, and then from there you just pay. Like, to me, that seemed more like a game that would be money first and marketing second, because... Everyone knows Mario. They don't really need to pitch Mario, but they give you just enough that, sure, you get a taste of Mario, maybe you go play a decade in Town Machine, but ultimately, if you want something that actually really convinces you to go play Mario, you need to pay money up front, which means it's more about making money at that point. And what's actually kind of interesting is, so they've previously said there are 200 million people that download Mario Run, and that number's still growing, but of that 200 million, there's only about 20 million active monthly users now. Now, 20 million is still a lot, but it's definitely not 200 million. So, you know, the game... Clearly had a money-first mentality over a marketing-first one. Hard to say how well it worked. 20 million is still plenty of money, but they have previously said it wasn't as profitable as they would like. So, you know, take it or leave it. So right now, you know, they could go with Mario Kart the Animal Crossing route. They could go the Mario route, marketing-first, money-first. Or what I think they're actually going to do is the best of both worlds, which is what Fire Emblem Heroes and Pokemon Go does. So these two games are their biggest successes on smartphones. I mean, granted, 
Pokemon isn't technically theirs, but they get a good cut of it. Uh, Go actually is really in a league of its own in many ways, because this is a game that, you know, is a worldwide phenomenon in a way that very few games are. Um, it's still making a ton of money. According to analytics from Super Data Research, this year, in to- or this past year in 2017, it made $900 million in revenue. And Nintendo confirmed in their financials that $79.6 million went to them it, for their share of Pokemon Go off in-app purchases and whatnot. So they're still making money off that thing. Um, then you've got Fire Emblem, which Nintendo has previously said is its most success- successful smartphone game. And in the briefing, Kimishima actually went on to say that they now plan to double down on the game because it's still growing so much, and they're going to start making TV commercials and doing special events, and they're really going to invest further in this. So what I'm getting at here, it's kind of a long way to go, but what I'm getting at here is that in both of these cases, with Go, with Heroes, there's this combination of monetization and marketing that lets the game be self-sufficient, but also lets it act as a Halo game to kind of go back, to get people to go back to their respective franchise on a dedicated system. And I think they pull us off because they designed the games a way where making money is a key component, but the money is used to augment the game versus forcing progress in the game. Like with Mario Run, you need to pay to unlock the other worlds. With Animal Crossing, crafting furniture is entirely free if you choose to uh, choose not to pay, if you choose not to speed up the process, but you cannot progress in the game unless you craft specific furniture. So whether you pay or not, the monetization hook is on actual progress. Then if you look at Pokemon Go or Heroes, they don't do that. Like, you can buy items, you can go get new heroes, but you don't need to do either of those things in either of those games to actually make your way through the game. You can also level up your hero in Fire Emblem using stuff you collect for free over time. Or you can, you know, catch Pokemon with some luck and some good timing and being in the right place at the right time. You don't actually need to pay. So, what I'm getting at here is I think that Mario Kart, considering it's already so mainstream, considering it's already so well-received, um, is not going to become the payway that, uh, or the paywall of sorts that Mario Run had because, while in theory buying a whole bunch of tracks would make sense, like track bundles or whatever, it doesn't work as Mario Run showed because people don't like paying up front. And then on the other hand, I don't think it's going to be a pay-it-progress thing in the sense of Animal Crossing because there's no real benefit from that. They haven't had much success with that in Animal Crossing. At least it seems that way because as a, mon- as a money-making scheme, they're not talking about making money off this thing. They're just talking about how it's a marketing tool. So I don't know if it's going to be in-game currency or, or, or real money or what, but I bet you you're going to get something in the game that you can augment using some sort of currency and you'll be able to enhance your vehicle, you'll be able to get new items that do new effects on opponents, something like that. I don't think it's going to be paywalled. I don't think it's going to be like a total... You know, uh, you have to pay to unlock a new cart because that new cart gets you to a new track or whatever, or you wait like six months to do it. I think it's going to be something in the middle. Well, we can only so, hope. Yeah, but that that's my long-winded way of saying that. But it's just interesting if you look at all the different strategies Nintendo's done over time and it kind of funnels into this one this one takeaway. So we'll see. I mean, for me, that's what I prefer at least. I assume you are cool with avoiding any sort of pay to play. Of course. Well, I don't know. I mean, if it's worth it. I mean, I've definitely paid my fair share of, I don't know, cards in Hearthstone because I put in enough time. I felt like, you know what? But see, that that's another know. example of a game that does it right because you can augment Hearthstone with new cards. You don't necessarily you can also get you can also just play without them and have the same experience. But if you want, like, yeah, you can also make, make the them best without. of the experience versus yeah. requiring it to. You can make all the new cards without paying any money too. Right. 
exactly. Mm. So, so yeah, I mean, I mean, I could see, I hate to say it, I could see a gotcha mechanic for cart parts. Because that would kind of be the mirror of how Fire Emblem does heroes. That is what Mario Kart does, already does. It's exactly. So, so they can just too. make money, real money, should you choose uh, to use your money. I hate that the carts are unlocked randomly. Yeah. But, I mean, time will, time will tell. But it's, it, we have a year. But I guess we're used to it already, so. Right, exa- exactly. Yeah, that's kind Begrudgingly. of. Begrudgingly. That's kind of the other thing about Animal Crossing I didn't even think about. Is like, um, part of the reason the timers feel so weird is because animal, uh-huh. well actually we already had timers but I guess they're just more in your face yeah, so it's not, it's not so much the timer the timer was just the 24 the timer's hour fine. the timer's fine it's the fact that you have to make certain things at certain times that's what's weird but the timers themselves are okay yeah but anyway so that's Mario Kart we'll, we'll see what happens I'm intrigued to learn more is kind of where my stance is now on tour but on the other side of the mobile coin separate from Mario Kart is Mitomo. Um, this was actually announced before Nintendo's briefing, but they are shutting down the app on May 9th, which is just two years after it first came out. Uh, and when I say shutting down, I mean literally shutting down. Like, if you don't transfer your Mii to your My Nintendo, or sorry, Nintendo account as an icon or anything, it's gone for good. Conversations, old answers to questions, gone for good. Sidekick Mii's gone for good, unless you put them on a QR code. Even your Mii, even your, uh, Mii photos, which are those dorky things where you can insert your Mii in funny photos or in photos from your camera roll, if they're in the app right now and May 9th rolls around and you didn't take them out, they're erased. Even though they're, I assume, saved locally, they're just gone. So the app is going to be absolutely worthless come May, unless you put these on your camera roll. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of a weird, <laughs> abrupt shutdown. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a story. Mitomo's usage has dropped so low that Nintendo, Nintendo literally can't justify keeping it open. I mean, that's what they're publicly saying. If they have a Q&A about why they're shutting down Mitomo, it's just like, oh yeah, we it's not worth the cost, which is weirdly upfront, but appreciated. But um, yeah, it's I, I, I imagine Mitomo is not... Nintendo made $268 million on their smartphone stuff since March. I imagine Mitomo is like a dollar of that, possibly. Because, I mean, how many people were buying items for their Mii's in Mitomo two years after the game came out? I would hope none. Yeah, exactly. It's all the good stuff you get for free, and all the other stuff you could also get for free. Yeah, and the thing is, like, it, it was kind of an interesting app, but it was a really weird app. I mean, how long did you end up keeping it and playing it? At most, maybe a month, if that. Yeah, I think I was good for about a month. I still have it on my phone. I still get birthday alerts. And now, oh. the, and now the alerts have a little picture of the me of the person, which is nice. I stuff. got rid of that thing. But I don't delete things. I'm a digital pack rat. But, uh, yeah, horrible. I think I played it for, like, well, if I have a 256 gig phone, why no. not? So horrible. Okay, I guess I'm a horrible person. But yeah, I uh, no thanks for agreeing. But uh, yeah, I have I played it maybe a month or two, and I checked in when they did the big 2.0 update, and then just stopped again. So I don't know. It, it like it was an interesting idea. It just felt felt kind of half baked. Like they they tried to enhance it. I mean, turning status updates into answer prompts in of itself is a clever idea, and it does let you learn more about your friends. But there's not much meat there, you know. Like mm-hmm. uh, ultimately, if you want to share something, you. I would assume you would want to consciously share it. You wouldn't want to be like, you know, wait to be asked. Yeah. Like Facebook doesn't prompt you, you know, it's like, tell us what you're up to or something. Not like, so waffles or pancakes. Like it doesn't, no one's going to, I mean, that one's actually actually a pretty good one. I I take that back. I feel like it'd be like if every time you log into Twitter, you can't just write a status. It has like a preset question that you have to answer. And the question also comes out when you post it. And, yeah, but yeah, exactly. And and but the thing is, and if you t- want to choose to ignore the question, then you just have a weird. And they have response. nothing to do. Yeah. yeah, but then Nintendo realized that, and they 
like I started to say, they actually did update it over time. They added real status updates, but it was probably too little too late. Like, even the sidekick me's were kind of cool. Like, you could have multiple characters and basically have them send off to different people and say different things, but still, I don't know. It never quite got there, I guess. And looking back, I mean, we said this at the time, it wasn't really a surprise now either, but looking back, it did really feel like a giant public beta test of the whole DNA partnership. What if they didn't just set up? grab most of it and just keep like a meme maker? I'm pretty sure people will still like to just right? do meme makers or and like, pictures and that's it. Why not? It's like a photo op thing. Or like, why not integrate it into Nintendo Switch Online? I mean, I assumed back when this thing was first announced and released that this was going to become the backbone of Nintendo Switch Online. Like, it seemed like... Oh, you were so wrong. I know. I was so wrong. Horribly, horribly. I know, but it made sense because this was the first app with Nintendo account integration. It tested server load issues by having so many people use it at first. It tested my Nintendo reward or the Nintendo account rewards for the first... No, it is my Nintendo. I was right. My Nintendo rewards for the first time. Like, all that was, like, perfectly lined up to then be like, and here's, at the time, NX Online on top of that. I don't know what they did. Like, I still think it would make a ton of sense. I mean, think about it. Your in-app room in Mitomo can just become, like, a physical embodiment of your online profile. You have, like, a shelf with your games that you're playing, and someone can go look at your game shelf and see what games you're playing. And, like, you know, maybe they open the game, and that's where it gives you stats. Or, like, you can collect physical achievements you can put in the room, kind of like in Odyssey where... uh you know, each kingdom, you can take a couple of souvenirs with you. You can have souvenirs in your room. You can have special clothing on your Mii that wouldn't just be inside your Miitomo app, but would actually graft off to all the various games that pull from the Mii API. So, you know, like, if I'm turning on Rocket League, it shows my Mii in the corner. But what if I have a, an inkling, uh, yeah, an inkling hat from Splatoon? Why can't I get that in Miitomo, have that in my Nintendo Online profile, and then have it pop up on Rocket League's little icon for me? Like... This is so perfect as a backbone. I don't know why why it wasn't there. And, I, and one argument you can make, I guess, is maybe people don't want to have to do all this weird like fate, pseudo PlayStation Home stuff. Xbox avatar. Or Xbox avatar thing. But that's fine. Just make it one of four tabs on the Nintendo Switch Online app. Have like chat with your friends, text or voice, like lobby system, whatever, a news feed, whatever's on the apps, and then just have on the far right of the menu like my game room. My Switch room, my me, anything like that. It could, it's like, I don't know. I just feel like so many people complain that Nintendo, not so many, but there's a small but vocal group four. that complain. There are four to five people on the internet that complain that the Switch OS is not Nintendo y enough and they miss the personality. And honestly, I, I miss some aspects of that. And this would be the perfect way to have had that personality while also not like shoving it down your throat. It'd be like a little taste of me versus 2.0 that just never happened. So. I'm bummed. I'm bummed that they instead just shut down Mitomo and didn't build on it. It could have been something cool. Oh, Miiverse 2.0. Oh, they did have a Miiverse 2.0. So this would be Miiverse 3.0, I guess. 2.0 is when they switched over to like game journals and play statuses from just having a general feed. Yeah, the one that made no sense. That made zero sense. I don't know who... There must have been some changing of the guard at Nintendo because they went from weird stuff on Wii U like that to, to like the ads. very logical structure. Like, oh, look, we can embed videos. Don't you wish you could embed videos? Haha, <laughs> you can't. You know what's really sad about that? Until so later. Miiverse was literally just a website that was in an HTML frame on the Wii U. So, like, it's not like embedding videos was a technical difficulty. They just didn't want to have to deal with moderating that. That's literally all it was. Like, it was just, you yeah, know, the little, like... pictures from anywhere. Yeah. yeah, like, you know the little, um like embed this YouTube video, those worked on Miiverse. That exact code just pasted in and it would work if they allowed it. It wasn't like they had to build it. But anyway. Yeah. So that that's 
that's what's going on in the world of Nintendo Mobile right now. Um, Mitomo felt like it would be the perfect bridge for Nintendo Switch Online. I mean, who knows? Maybe some of the ideas will eventually resurface in Nintendo Switch Online uh, because one of the other announcements that Kimishima made during the presentation is that the service is now delayed until September 2018, which, for those keeping track at home, is a full year after its original announced release date of fall 2017. So I hope you enjoyed that free year of Nintendo. Yeah, but my, my gut... Online. My gut feeling is they are revamping things beyond what they originally anticipated. I mean, in fact... During the presentation's Q&A segment, Kimishima specifically said that they're planning what he what's called, quote, attractive content and services. So something's definitely up beyond what they initially promised us of just like the classic game selection or whatever. So, I don't know. Maybe they took the voice chat criticism to heart. Wouldn't that be nice? I don't know. I mean, what's on your wish list at this point? We have a whole nine more months to, or eight more months to go. To just copy-paste um, PlayStation DUI? Completely? The whole thing? You want the crossbar, cross nav bar, and all that? To copy paste PlayStation's functionality that they have. So chat, the chat, and everything. What else is there? Um, everything. Elaborate. <laughs> yeah, mainly the chat, and just how easy it is to invite people and create little groups to chat with people. Like all, all the just the versatility of the chat in mm-hmm. general. This is really, really nice. I'd be, I'd be cool with them do keeping that on or putting that on the app if it was also on the hard on the Switch hardware itself. Yeah, yeah, but because yeah, I, I like when I've seen people use the PS4 interface, it's not exactly the quickest to go through all those little menus that go. Some go left, right, some go up, down. I mean, I know the the left, right's the main one, the up, down's the sub, but it, there's a lot of scrolling involved as well. Not saying. as much as you think. It looks like a lot. I know, but it, 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 I guess once you know how to use it, it's not as it's. I don't know. It's not very complicated. I I don't mean it's complicated. I'm just saying there's a lot of scrolling involved. Like you, it's like a lot of movement physical movement i mean right i mean it just looks like that oh Oh, you're saying it's not so much yeah but yeah so well i don't think they're gonna quite quite steal that but they're gonna something's up and (laughs) the september timing to me at least is actually quite interesting because in the briefing kimishima outlined nintendo's current slate of announced 2018 games on switch and what's noticeable is that they almost perfectly well two things first they almost perfectly stop in time for Nintendo Online to come out. So something big is coming down the pipe at that point. But also, they I didn't even notice this. They perfectly mirror the drumbeat of monthly releases we saw in 2017. Like, we've talked about all these games before. We've talked about when they come out. But when you see them all on a single presentation slide and they have dates next time you realize, wow, Nintendo is actually keeping a station releases into year two. That's kind of nuts. Like, in February, it's been, or this month, we're now in February, Bayonetta, Bayonetta 1 plus 2 and Dragon Quest Builders. Then in March, we have Kirby Star Allies. In April, we have Nintendo Labo. In May, we have Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. And then in spring, which I'm just going to go ahead and assume means June at this point, we get Mario Tennis Aces. Then you've got Yoshi, which is currently just listed for 2018, which officially is now the first note of a delay from this previous spring promise. But I don't know. Yoshi seems like it'd be perfect for July or August. And that is post-spring, which is why they might just put 2018 instead of an actual time. So that would be nice. And that conveniently leads right into the September Switch Online launch. Like, I, I know Fire Emblem Switch is coming at some point this year. But like, And that will be something that they haven't dated either. But what are the odds that the Switch Online service conveniently launches literally the month after these games seem to have stopped their pattern? Like, something's coming. There's got to be some sort of big push, I feel like. 
and I bet we're gonna learn about it at E3 or something like that. Well, it's five more months, six yeah. more months, whenever it is, June 12th, 11th? Uh, 12th through 14th or 10th through 12th or something like that. Yeah, in June. But yeah, if I had to guess, if I had to guess, my guess is come September, Switch is gonna have a big online launch with something big and then probably have another major release that follows it right after. Like if you, I don't know if you remember back when Nintendo Wi-Fi Connection launched all the way in 2005, I wanna say. It had Mario Kart DS in November and then literally three weeks later, Animal Crossing Wild World. That's a pretty big one-two punch to start your online service. So, I don't know. Animal Crossing for Switch seems certainly likely this year. We just were talking about the 75% of of uh, Pocket Camp players who are women who could be, you know, expanding the footprint, audience footprint strategy of Nintendo into a new demographic this fall. But since Mario Kart's already there, we already have Mario Kart on Switch. You're going to need some other big multiplayer game. I don't know. Smash Bros? New Pokemon? Both of those seem like pretty good candidates to launch an online paid service with, alongside I mean, Animal Crossing. We already, I mean, it's, it's already obvious that Smash Bros. is coming out this year. It is funny, because last episode you said that, and I'm like, no way. But now, thinking about the online launch, I'm oh, like, actually, now, you know what? Oh, now it makes sense. It does. When any, even like a two-year-old could have told you that. Well, let's see if that two-year-old's right come September, October, because it could just as easily be uh, Pokemon Gen 8. Well, I mean, two-year-olds are often wrong, so we'll see. You just undermine your own, <laughs> your own argument. <laughs> yes, I did. Okay. So Very intentionally. I'm okay. I mean, well, yeah, because I mean, I'm not wrong. A two year old could have told you that. Two year olds could tell you a lot of things. Two year olds can. Yeah, they can. Sometimes they won't shut up. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Like me and almost every episode of this podcast that we ever do. Tell me about but, it. But, huh. but, uh, I don't know. What, so do you think Smash or Pokemon is more likely, Mr. I'm betting on Smash? I think Smash. I know the answer. I mean, they do also do yearly Pokemon games, and we're asking... Fine, give us a Diamond and Pearl reboot and Smash. Oh, three. Interesting. They could do Animal Crossing, Pokemon, and Smash. Hmm. I'm pretty confident Animal Crossing is happening. I mean, the, the Pocket Camp's lined up perfectly. Pretty much every major Nintendo game that got an app, like a smartphone app, or every Nintendo franchise, I should say, then got a new game pretty shortly thereafter, within a year. So, Animal Crossing would line up perfectly with that as well. So we'll, we'll we'll see, but regardless of what's coming with Switch uh, online in the future, it's just nice to know that Nintendo's actually keeping the momentum of releases going. I mean, I know I know not all games apply to all Switch owners in the same way that perhaps 2017 did, uh, and you could also argue that swapping Zelda and Splatoon with say Kirby Star Allies and Mario Tennis is not exactly a fair trade, but. I think one of the reasons Switch did so well in 2017 is because there was such a, such a steady stream of content for the system, and you really see that in the numbers, which uh, Floyd brings us into bucket number two here of this episode, which is the state of the Switch. And to run with the whole State of the Union motif, the state of the Switch is strong. It is very, very strong. The numbers Nintendo put out are just, like, nuts. They're straight up, like, crazy. Switch, as of December 31st, has sold 14.86 million units since it launched on March 3rd. Of that 14.86 million units, nearly half, 7.24, were sold just during the holiday quarter of October to December. In other words, things are getting crazy. <laughs> like, that's a lot of Switches in a single three-month span. Yeah, but wasn't it, I, I don't know, it's just a random hmm. thing that just came into mind when yeah. you said that. I remember reading somewhere that it was still a failure because it could have done better or something Yes, like that. Um, in the sense of, it wasn't a failure, but... 
they had shortages. They continue to have shortages. They're not as bad as the Wii shortages, but they have shortages. Meaning, if they didn't have shortages, this number of 14 could have been 16 or 17 or whatever. Who knows? Hmm. But we don't know because they had shortages. So from a fin- yeah, from we- an investor perspective, it kind of failed in the sense that they didn't generate their maximum potential revenue. I thought it profit. was – wait, maybe I'm confusing it with the SNES Classic Edition, but was it with the Switch that – the shortages weren't so much a cause that they didn't order enough units, but that there was a certain material that they couldn't get a hold of their force let everything else. It was a switch. So it was like literally out of their hands. Like they had just... component issues in the first six months That's and right. they started to resolve it. But mm. that was yeah, they had the switch shortages way less than it was. I mean originally they didn't think they'd be able to sell anywhere near this, so it's better. But yes, they had component storages. I can't I think it was something with the Joy Con or the screen. I don't remember which, but it slowed them down for a while. But but even then, like 14.86 is a big number. I mean, in nine months flat, Switch has now officially outsold the entirety of Wii U's lifetime. That was 13.56 million over four and a half years versus 14.86 million in nine months. So I think it also um, means that we now have to officially retire the Wii U comparisons. Ever since Switch came out, we've always been like, how does it compare? Like, look how much faster it's catching up to Wii U. Look at it go. But now it's past Wii U. So Wii U is officially dead and buried. Next on the Nintendo console sales ladder, which we'll be comparing to over many months to come, I'm sure, is the GameCube, which had lifetime sales of 21.74 million. But here's the thing. That one might even be passed pretty soon because uh, Nintendo's projecting that they're going to sell 2.74 million more Switches just between now and the end of March. And that doesn't seem as far-fetched as you'd think um, because they're already based on if you look at how they're doing in Japan, where they sold two hundred twenty thousand a week or something like that, they're probably already well past fifteen million. They're probably on to almost sixteen million in the month since the financial period ended, and we got these numbers. So to hit two point seven four by end of March seems reasonable, and that means that realistically, we could probably pass GameCube well within the next year, which is again kind of crazy. So maybe we need to look a little bigger than GameCube. How about Wii? Let's compare it to Wii. In its first four quarters on the market, the Wii moved 13.11 million systems worldwide. Again, Switch is ahead right now, 14.86 million. And that was only in three quarters. So in one quarter less, it already did more than Wii did in its first four. Granted, to your point about shortages a minute ago, Angel, uh, the Wii had way worse shortages. But nonetheless, it's outpacing Wii in its current capacity at this time in its life. So... That's kind of crazy. So maybe we should look at a system that doesn't have a shortage because it's not perhaps a fair comparison. So let's look at 3DS. 3DS was a system that also had a March launch, like the Switch. It had a bit of a slow start, but it got that big price cut the first August from $250 to $170, as you probably remember with the Ambassador games and all that. That was about halfway through its first year. And then it saw good sales numbers. It ended up in its first year selling $15.04 million. But with no price drop... Switch is already only 18,000 behind that. And as I was just saying, if the sales rate continued that we think it's continuing, it already passed 3DS's first year. That's not official yet. It's just kind of guessing. So it's way ahead of basically everything. I mean, even if you look at something that's not Nintendo, like take PS4, for example, that shipped three and a half million units in its first year. Again, Switch is ahead of that in just three quarters. So it's not so much that Nintendo just made a comeback and is doing well. It's that they made this insane comeback where Kimishima's comment a year ago about selling 100 million Switches, that thing that I said, I seriously doubt that sounds crazy. It's a little too early to say for sure, but it's not sounding quite as crazy anymore. Like, this thing is moving. The question is, can they keep the momentum up, really? Hmm. But as of now, this thing is moving. Well, not without Smash Brothers. Or Pokemon, or Animal Crossing. And or. I think they do well without Animal Crossing. 
Dude, Animal Crossing's huge for them now. It's one of the biggest franchises. I think they could do well without Animal Crossing. They could save one of them for year three. They need stuff beyond just 2018. Which is funny because we were saying last year, well, they need stuff beyond 2017. And obviously that's going to be the refrain. Especially because um, Kimishima was saying in an interview, I want to say with McKay or one of those, that they hope Switch will last more than five or six years. They want it to have a longer life. So they definitely, you're kind of to your point, need to pace things out. So yeah, maybe maybe Animal Crossing or Pokemon will wait. Who knows? But uh, it's not just hardware, by the way. Software's also doing very well. Um, 52 million games, actually almost 53 million games, have been sold since the system's launch. Half of those were just in the holiday quarter. 25 million. And uh, for comparison, we used total software sales was 101 million. So in nine months, Switch has sold half of all the games ever sold on Wii U's entire four and a half a year life. So, and that Ouch. includes Breath of the Wild at the end selling like a million on Wii U or a million seven five or something on Wii U. So like it's, Switch is a crazy situation right now. And the, the real success stories of the games, at least, as you probably expect, are first party releases. Mario Odyssey, perhaps the craziest of them all, uh, moved 9 million games, 9 million copies in two months. That is a lot of Mario nipples, but more significantly, it's um, actually just a lot of games. It's on par. It sold as much as Star Wars Battlefront 2 sold across PS4, Xbox, and PC combined. Was your Mario ever um, shirtless during your partial playthrough? No. I like keeping my Mario's nipples hidden. <laughs> <laughs> as God intended. <laughs> as God intended. But no, it's uh, he was not shirtless, but... Why do you ask? Was yours? Oh, no. I always just had the basic Mario costume or some yeah. of the... And later, the one you unlocked that just never came off after. The one I mostly kept was uh, the inverse of the regular, like the old school Mario that you get if you scan the Mario Amiibo. Oh. The one Amiibo I've scanned in like a year was for this. <laughs> so it's a costume. You save some money. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so 9 million... 18 million masked Mario nipples, 9 million games. That's on par with, that's on par with Battlefront 2, which, as I started to say, is kind of insane. Also, that 9 million means it's officially outpaced the sales of Mario Galaxy in its first, you know, few months on the market, which sold 5 million over its first holiday and went on to a lifetime total of nearly 13 million. So if Mario Odyssey keeps up, it's going to pass that. Um, perhaps more notably though, Mario Odyssey's sales are higher than any single Wii game ever sold. In two months. Jeez. In two months. Oh, in two months. No, 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 no. I'm saying Mario Odyssey in two months sold more than any Wii U game ever sold. Period. It took two months for Mario Odyssey to eclipse the best the Wii, had to off- Wii U had to offer. Man. Yeah. And if you're wondering what that top seller was, it was Mario Kart 8 on Wii U with 8.4 million copies. And Mario's already at 9. Um, by the way, this, for the record, the Switch version of Mario Kart 8 is already at... Um, 7.33 million so it is very likely to pass its father i don't know what it's called it's 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 predecessor it's older brother it's older brother it's very likely to pass it it's definitely very it's older brother yeah older brother it's very likely to pass old bro mario kart 8 regular or big sister or big sister yeah we don't discriminate against gender here or just older um, sibling whatever you want yeah there you go that that's the gender neutral term we're looking for um in this day and age uh but yeah it's it's going to pass it very very soon so on top of these, you've also got Zelda Breath of the Wild selling seven point or sorry six point seven million copies. It's already uh, Japan's best selling Zelda game behind Ocarina of Time, and worldwide it's already the second best seller behind Twilight Princess. And that's in a year, in one year. 
and less than a year, nine months. Then there's Splatoon 2. This data I actually find kind of funny. Splatoon 2 on Switch has sold 4.91 million copies. It's been out since July. So we're talking, what, six, five months, something like that. Splatoon 1 on Wii U, in its entire two and a half years of existence, currently sits at 4.91 million copies. So Splatoon 2 just matched it in six months flat. Well, like, no matter what is on Switch, the it does The bigger install well. base... Yeah, ups, of course, yeah. yeah. And that's exactly why they poured over Mario Kart and why they're doing Donkey Kong and Bayonetta and all those yeah, games. Yeah, this is like the one team where, like, ports feel not... I don't know, I mean, none of them feel stated. They feel like, like, oh, that's awesome. Now more people get to play it. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's like more now people get to play it. Yeah, which is kind of like the thing where I was saying before, you know, like, um, they have the drumbeat of releases and not all these appeal to everyone in the same way that 2017s might have. Because, yeah, I, I'm not going to get Bayonetta. I have it already. I'm not going to get Donkey Kong. I have it already. So for me, it's not a game a month, but for the vast majority of Switch owners, it is. And that that's still like – and they're quality games. They're not like little throwaway games. Like Donkey Kong is a huge game. Bayonetta is two big games in one. So there's a lot to play if you've never had a Switch before. I mean a, a Wii U or haven't played Nintendo in a long time. So, you know, we're probably going to see more successes like this is what I'm getting at, which yeah. is crazy. And uh, you know what's actually interesting about Splatoon in Japan? Splatoon 2, two-thirds of all Switch owners own Splatoon 2. Two-thirds? 60% of... So a little under two-thirds. 60... Yes. So slightly under two-thirds. 60% of Splatoon 2 owners are also the two-thirds of Switch owners that... Wait. Or also two-thirds of Switch owners. There we go. Yeah. Um, uh, You know what's actually kind of surprising? Uh, Xenoblade 2 even has sold a million copies in in under a month by a couple days. Wow. Yeah. So pretty much everything's doing well. What's actually perhaps... More interesting to me, though, uh, is that even with the stay drumbeat of new first-party games and even with all these games already selling so many copies, Nintendo actually thinks they're just going to keep on trucking. Like, you would think, okay, 9 million Mario, that's already, you know, a ton of the Switches out there. Who's going to buy it now? I guess new Switch owners, but, like, how long is that momentum going to go? How's it going to work? But... During the briefing, Kimishima made a comparison between attach rates of top-selling Switch games with those of the Wii. And if you exclude Wii Sports because it was obviously bundled with the system, so it's attach rates through the roof, the top four Switch games, which is Mario, Mario Kart, Zelda, Splatoon, in that order, uh, appear to already have higher attach rates per game than their counterparts did in the same time frame on Wii. So we're talking like Twilight Princess, Wii Play, Mario Party 8. Mario Party 8. Those games went on to become some of the biggest sellers on the system, they had a lot of people buying them in the early days, and they just kept buying them. And Switch's attach rates are now outpacing that, suggesting, at least this is what Kimishin was trying to say, that we may have our first batch of Switch Evergreens here already. Like, all the first year of games may just continue to be Evergreen titles for Nintendo forever and ever and ever. Like, Mario will keep selling, Zelda will keep selling, Splatoon will keep selling, uh, Mario Kart will keep selling. They don't have to even, like, they're just going to in addition to the drumbeat, just make money hand over fist on these older games, too. At least that's what they're thinking, based on sales trends from the Wii so hand over fist hand over say. fist I say yeah but it's just kind of like because you know the way we look at it and the way we talk about it on the show is always just like okay those games are done and over with on to the next one like that's how the core Nintendo fans think but a lot of Nintendo's brand butter is selling the old stuff still I mean that's how the 3DS is staying afloat right now so kind of you know kind of interesting to see uh, all that said though those who are listening closely may have keenly noticed that I left out a couple first party games uh, we don't have numbers on Hyrule or Fire Emblem Warriors, which means it sold under a million. We don't have numbers on 
uh, Pokin, which probably means it sold under a million. We only got million plus sales here, but we do have numbers on one, two, switch and arms. And both of these are million sellers and have been for a while, but their sales seem to have kind of just like tapered off notably. One, two, switch somehow this holiday moved half a million copies worldwide. I don't know who's buying that. Like it was kind of a filler game that was eh when it came out with the switch. I don't know who, when there's so many better options in the holidays, it's like, well, Gotta get one. Gotta eat those virtual sandwiches, you know, or gotta milk those cows or whatever. But somehow, five hundred million or five hundred thousand people, sorry, uh, got it, which means it's now at total sales of one point eight million. So one two switch is doing fine. But poor arms, poor arms went from selling a million copies in like the first two weeks of its release to selling four hundred thirty thousand copies worldwide this past quarter. Ouch. That's again. In a bubble of itself, that is very good. Half a million, almost half a million is good. But when you then look and go, well, Mario Odyssey sold 6 million plus. Mario Kart sold however many million no, plus. Mario Odyssey. And, and 1-2-Switch even is ahead of it by, like, I don't know, uh, 70,000 copies okay, in the even holidays. Even deserve that. 200,000 total. Yeah, like, what? How did that happen? I mean, it sure had about the same amount of content as 1-2-Switch when it first got released. But it But, yeah... That's the thing but that, I don't know. I, I think it might have been too little, too late. Maybe, but it just seems with weird. that game, yeah, it just seems weird because like they basically gave it a huge marketing push with all the DLC. I mean, new characters, new modes. It was not even if it had the reputation of being bare bones. If you're buying a Switch in October, Arms looks a, more way more appealing. Like I don't know why more people were buying One Two Switch than Arms. And again, I can't stress this enough. One Two Switch and Arms did well for themselves. Yeah, I'm just saying in the context of Nintendo having all these. Stellar performances. These two are like some of the weakest, which is surprising because one was positioned to be like We Play 2.0, and the other was positioned to be the next Mario Kart or the next Smash Bros. And neither of them quite got there. Is kind of what I'm getting at. But I, I mean, maybe maybe Arms will just keep trucking along at a couple hundred thousand with esport promotions, kind of carrying it because you know it was at Evo a week or two ago, right? Yeah. And they had 332 entrants, which is not a tiny number. That's a decent number of people that are like, I'm going to check out Arms. I mean, I don't know what Smash looks like, but... um, Way bigger. I would assume, but, but it's not like Arms had like 20. I think the important <laughs> thing about Arms... I, I watched um, I watched Arms, I watched Smash Bros., I watched Street Fighter uh-huh. uh, on Evo Japan. Even on King of Fighters, which I don't really get how the mechanics of the game work. It looks like another... I mean, it's a 2D fighter, but man, it was still really entertaining to watch. But that's the thing, though. I don't know how to play king of fighters or its nuances but i still really like got to see like whoa that looked like a crazy awesome maneuver oh that looks intense. doesn't show that and arms unfortunately doesn't show that like i know from playing it that you can really feel the skill gap when you're playing against someone that's really 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 good yeah but watching it i feel like you just don't get that whatsoever like i was watching grand finals i was watching like the losers finals and everything and it still just looked like people were just throwing random punches and dodging around I mean, like, yeah, like, the commentators will say, like, oh, that's a smart movie, he saved his, his ultra. I mean, that's kind of, like, the only mechanic that that still feels, like, visually, that visually translates well. Like, yeah. when, when people use their their rush their rush attack. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, when did they save it? Like, when someone throws out a punch but then uses their rush attack to cancel out their thrown out punch because it whiffed or to block an incoming grab or something. But other than that, like, it kind of... It's not that exciting to watch because it doesn't feel like there's really high level power there, the even though it a, is. I wonder if the lack of an actual combo system, yeah, had an effect. The biggest, the, the biggest combo is one two. Yeah, because when you, <laughs> yeah, 
one two switch sold more one two yeah. no but when you see but, like but like like, uh, I, like I said before like when we first started getting arms it's that essentially like the arms are literally just disguising the fact that this is just a projectile game where you're just throwing two things over and over again yeah and that's not fun to watch yeah because I, I was just gonna say like with a combo think, you can see how it escalates yeah there's zero escalation visible with arms yeah unfortunately except the rush where literally it's like I'm now escalating look at me and you like light up and fire yeah and I mean yeah look at as interesting and as really interesting as the characters are and and I will admit like the game is really like it's fun to play mm-hmm. but just I don't know like, to me personally just not on a competitive level obviously it did find an audience just not that big of one and it seems like they're trying to slowly branch out that audience although it's not going to do well for the reasons you're saying but like they added a tournament mode the other day out of nowhere they said they're done with updates with arms and then here comes a tournament which mode just which can only mode. be unlocked with a cheat code which makes no sense to me isn't it just L and R on the title screen or something so you hold down the right stick and you hit L and R and then it blocks out some of the other options and lets you just do versus but it puts in like a tournament structure or something like that yeah, which know. is really cool which, which is cool like, but why, why is it not just, a, just have that? why is it not a menu option why is it like guys here's a secret if you hit it's L&R, like land mode I guess but like why is that? Why are they hiding? If they want to pivot it towards esports, even, especially if it's a limited audience, like you're saying, because it's not as visually engaging. If they want to pivot it towards esports and sales, you know, like okay, we sold four hundred thirty or whatever last four hundred thirty thousand, not just four hundred thirty. We sold four copies last quarter, guys. It's, but no, they sold four hundred thirty thousand. They're like, okay, maybe we appeal to esports people. We keep it going, kind of at a low, steady level. Why then hide the thing that makes it esport ready? I don't get it. it yeah, that should have been a beta from the beginning it and, have been a and visible, as you said. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it's land play where, like, you don't it's want a to, limited use case. Yeah, you don't want someone to. Uh, yeah, you don't want to take up unnecessary UI space or someone yeah. to click on it and be like, "Why can't I do anything with this?" Yeah, like tournament. Like, tournament should be front and center front on and this center. kind of game. It's weird. Similarly, they added a gallery, kind of which is same actually cool. Deal with Splatoon, or like, do people just have to set up regular versus matches? Well, anytime they want to have a tournament, it's or, land. You, it supports land. No, but like for a tournament mode. I like, don't for a tournament. I don't. I guess no. Actually, I mean, I where guess, you go to do tournament to do land play. Actually, I take that back. I guess it's no different than any fighting game where people just queue up. Like, all right, where's the next match? All right, here, just go to the land mode. Right. Blah blah blah. But arms, I don't know. I guess it looks like a lot of them just use one or two monitors and then right. just have people come have in. People and come out. in with them, yeah. But I don't know. Just like like they did the gallery right. That's the other thing they have. They have a gallery. You use the coins you get in the game to unlock art, yeah. like all the different art they tweeted. I would assume. But that that one gets its own tab along the bottom next to uh, the achievements. Tournament mode doesn't even get one of those. Poor tournament mode. But again, it's it's worth saying like Arms and One Two Switch still did well for themselves. A million plus is nothing to scoff at, especially at the rate that they both got to a million. And obviously, Nintendo's still pushing Arms. They did a thirty percent sale on it on the eShop this past week. Like, it might still be going actually for anyone who's curious. Um, but yeah, it's just not like Mario or Splatoon levels of success. So when you have three games that sell over 6 million copies each in your first nine months, and then you have a game that you're trying to position as your next big IP and it sort of like goes strong to a million and just sort of stops, it looks like it's problematic even if it's – you know, it's, it's not problematic, but it doesn't look good for that game because of the, its relativeness to the other you – know, you know what I'm trying to say. Like, yeah. like I'm just still doing well at some. But um, yeah, all the games, regardless of which sold what – uh, actually helped contribute to another noteworthy stat that came out in Tennis Financials. Their download sales are up 87% year over year. That means they nearly doubled the number of games that are downloaded. 
And uh, it's like over like 450 titles now. Yes, there are now over 400 titles. Although, funny enough, in the presentation um, that Kimishima did in the briefing, he's like, "We have over 300 titles." It's like, okay, well, I don't know what date that thing is. We said that you guys had over 300 titles here on the podcast like a month ago, but as of today, as of when we're recording, or as of this past week, I should say. I just saw the article today. Uh, there are now officially over 400 titles available for Switch. Yeah. And all those are obviously what helps drive the download sales up to 87% year over year. Uh, especially, and Commissioner Dance actually addressed this directly in the briefing, briefing, but I think, you know, it's safe to assume that it's not just first party titles that are doing it, but the massive wave of Nindies and third party successes we've seen over the past few months that have also significantly helped Nintendo's download essentially double or come very close to doubling, which is, again, huge so uh we always seem to be dropping these sorts of stats every episode about like you know this game is doing particularly well or that game or this nindy or that nindy and like this episode i'm here to tell you that hamsters arcade archives over a million copies download across all the different emulations and resident evil revelations one and two 250,000 copies sold on switch which is the total that each individual version on xbox and ps4 previously sold combined so like again the the and I still this, have to go buy it. Yeah, we still have to do our thing because we're gonna like split up the game. Yeah, yeah. I actually remembered about that when I was writing this, but I forgot to yeah. text you. But yeah, yeah I remember texting out. you a long time. Just you were in Japan when you texted me, and yeah, I completely forgot because you're in Japan. It's been a month. A month. Yeah, what? I can do it today. What the hell? <laughs> I mean, I after we record, Best Buy's not far. I, it can happen. We'll make it. Okay, the, the, okay, this is weird. You're threatening me on air. You know, if, if, if there's ever harm to me, I have evidence now. You just screwed yourself over. Well, I'd like saying. to see them try and stop whatever it is you're implying that I'm going to do. I don't know what you're going to do. I'm just saying if you were to do anything. But anyway, yeah, so the point is stuff still sells really well on Switch. Those are just a couple examples. But what's especially significant for uh, Switch's future, in my mind, is that all this happened right off the bat. Like... The fact that the Switch now has the status of a user bra- user base that will embrace games made by people who aren't Nintendo is good because that's always been a problem. Like in the past, it's always been, oh, Nintendo fans only buy Nintendo games. They never buy third party. But now we have people who are buying third party games in droves and it's it's leading to real results. I mean, we're now seeing companies like Epic Games go on record publicly that they want to bring something like Fortnite to Switch. Like, could you imagine... I don't know, in the Wii U or The developers Wii. of Dota? I mean, not Dota. Um, League? What? No, that's Riot Games. Epic Games. Right. They oh. make uh, the Unreal Engine Epic. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, they make. They used to make Gears of War back in mm-hmm. the day. But yeah, can you imagine something like Epic and a game like Fortnite coming to Wii U or Wii? I mean, this is this massively multiplayer, multi-platform shooter. That would barely be a blip on a Nintendo system's radar before now. And yet here we are with Epic publicly, again publicly saying, which has a lot more weight than just kind of like rumors, publicly saying they'd love to do it. So it's nice because developers are recognizing there's this interest and they're now mobilizing because of that interest. Um, Like up to this point, we already talked about how, you know, there's 300, 400 games, but it's just going to ramp up from here because there's a survey that the Game Developers Conference did. GEC puts this out every year kind of get a pulse on what systems are doing well what the trends are going to be in the big uh, in the next year for gaming and when asked what platform they were most interested in switch now ranks number three on the list behind pc and ps4 or ps4 and pc i should say uh 28 of all developers have responded saying they want to support switch which is more than in the past more significantly the number of developers who reported bringing a game to switch rose from three percent who are actively working on a game in 2017 and 5% who are planning one in 2017 
to 12% actively working on a game in 2018 and 15% planning to bring that game over to Switch or bring their next game over to Switch, I should say. So not the most massive numbers, obviously. Like 12 and 15 is not a huge percent, but it's a pretty big uptick from 3% actively working on one and 5% planning to bring one. So that that's all good news. And of those who have released a game on Switch, 28% that responded to the survey said that the Switch version was the best-selling version they put out. The latest example of that is actually news that broke right before we recorded today, and that is Celeste, Indie Darling Celeste, best-selling versions on Switch. And we'll have full impressions of it next episode for anyone that's curious. But yeah, it's it's if you think about it, the whole like first year of Switch was just kind of this crazy big gold rush. And, you know, like a few people at the start of Switch era like wandered into a new area. They started panning around a bit for gold. They struck gold, and now the masses are following and bringing all their other stuff with them. The problem is, like any gold rush, for all the stories of success, there are also those who don't find success. And while Switch is indeed... It is very friendly to indies, and third parties uh, are certainly getting more mileage out of it than they did before. There's no guarantee that that's going to happen for you. And unfortunately, there have been companies who aren't seeing that success right away. Like in that same GDC survey, 16% of Switch developers, who already had games on Switch, said that these Switch versions of their games sold less than on other platforms. And the most notable example of this, and it pains me to say this because we do love these guys and we love the series, is uh, the Mutant Muds collection that Tui put out in December. So for those unfamiliar, this is a compilation of three games, Mutant Muds, Great games. Three great great three great games. Mutant Muds and Oz DLC, so the deluxe edition. Uh, it's like semi sequel super challenge, which is basically like the lost levels of Mutant Muds. Like Mario Lost Levels is Mutant Muds Super Challenge. Which Mutant Muds well. already had I guess lost level equivalent. They added ghost levels later yeah. to make it even more challenging, and then they have super challenge, which is just even more challenging. It's it's, it's, a, it's a lot of levels. Too. A like lot, it's a lot of games. It's a lot of games. And on top of that, they did a whole new puzzle game, Mud Blocks, which is sort of based off Bomb Monkey and old DSiWare they get, game they did, but they revamped it and changed a lot of the stuff and made a whole new game DSiWare. out of it. DSiWare? It was on DS. 3DS. You're right. It was on 3DS. Yes, it was not DSiWare. Correct. I screwed up. Yeah. Yes. Uh, how could I? I mean, when you're rattling off this many stats, man, things are just going to... No, but... Uh, I expected better from you. I expected better from me, too. Might as well just... Might as well just fall on my sword right here, right now, right? But anyway, um, the reason I bring up Atui specifically is because the head of their head guy, Jules Watson, uh, he put up a blog post last week. He has a private blog where he often talks about Atui and their progress and gives a lot of insight like into the development and business side of it that most developers don't publicly share, which is kind of cool. Sounds kind of scary. And, and it, 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 it is to publicly say that stuff. I'm, like, I'm surprised he put this up because he basically came out and was like, you know, Mutant Muds didn't do so hot. He describes it as only selling okay and compared its sales to Enter the Gungeon, which also came out the same week on Switch. And Enter the Gungeon sold 75,000 copies in its first two weeks, and they were thrilled about it, the developers. And Jules was kind of like, hey, I sold 10% of that about, which means he sold 7,500 copies, 7,500 copies in two weeks while Enter Gungeon's running around like, we sold 75,000, the Switch is amazing. He's like, but what about me? And the, 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 the thing that is kind of really a bummer here is like, first of all, they they were a very prolific Nintendo developer, indie developer since like the early 3DS days. Like they have pulled. Yeah. They are Ooh, a known Dimension. entity. Yeah, and they put out Dimension kind of, 2. Great example. The sequel and the first one. <laughs> Moon Chronicle. There we go. Um, Zeodrifter. I did say Moon. I said Moon, Dimension, oh, yeah, and then did. Dimension yeah, 2. Yeah, I did catch you say Moon. Zeodrifter. Jeez. Um, 
um chicken wiggle yeah well that one didn't do so hot either yeah but, but yeah it's uh yeah so they Totes have the goat that's not a nintendo that's coming to switch that's though yeah but yeah they, soccer slammer though yeah i'm kind of looking forward to that yeah that's the thing it's like even even with all this problem all this trouble they're still making stuff which is kind of cool but yeah the, the thing i was gonna say is so they tried to accommodate themselves in that they or they tried to you know they had the prolific per uh, profile so to speak and they try to accommodate the fact that Mutant Muds is an older game and they realize that so when they first announced it it was $10 to pre-order the game itself is $15 now that it's released they couldn't do a loyalty discount to previous owners so they did this instead as like a workaround that's still 5 bucks cheaper than most big name Switch game, like Switch yeah, indie and games and we've talked about this game before and I've said that like just deluxe or just like super change is probably worth the nine bucks alone yeah so for if 5 more dollars you get two, but that's... double and a half because you get a puzzle game too and like Nintendo even put it on the news channel on the Switch for him. Like, they they tried. So it's just kind of a bummer to see such a fun platformer and a Tui who again is such like a prolific developer to just sort of fall to the wayside. Like I don't really know, I don't really know what happened here. Like, do you have any ideas why? <sighs> Not too much. The only thing I could think of is just that I mean, Mutamus has just been out for a long time. I mean, it, I don't know if it was ever like mega popular, but I feel like it definitely made its rounds in a ton of like top like indie game list like just like it was definitely yeah it, it got around so i feel like it's just been on people's mind for a while that when they saw it on the switch it's like oh this is an old game i could wait on this whereas like enter the gungeon i think came out this year it was like on steam earlier it, it's been on steam i think since 2016 but yeah. it didn't have a very high profile until this yeah like i never year, even heard of it until year. i just ran into it on the eShop. i'm like whoa this looks cool and different it's like uh it's like a bullet hell, but you're controlling a little person, and all you really have is a dodge roll attack, and everything is super over the top, and crazy. And, 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 and it's co-op, and yeah, it has a multiplayer component well, throughout, just, right? Just for two people, yeah. Well, still, but like, because that that might be the other downfall. Yeah, of so, is it's single player on a system whose theme is local multiplayer. Yeah, and honestly, like almost anything that's multiplayer, I do. I mean, yeah, bomb monkey. I mean, bomb monkey. Um, bomb monkey two. Mud, mud, mud blocks. blocks. <laughs> yeah, mud blocks does have multiplayer, but but it's kind I of feel like I mean. On. Yeah, I feel like I do prioritize anything with, like, a longer multiplayer, more long... Which is fine, because, like, to Switch's credit, single-player games do fine as well. Stardew Valley, Golf Story, those are two of the biggest indie games of the year. Stardew Valley is actually one of the best-selling downloaded games on Switch in 2017. So it's like it's limited, but... But look at, um... What's that game called? Um, Death Squared. That one is exclusively co-op. You can't even play that game by yourself. Yeah, and that one blew up on Switch. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, I think if nothing else, maybe it's just a prime example, like a two-e situation here. Maybe it's just a prime example that unfortunately is going to become more common with this gold rush, where yeah, and I mean, as like, more games show up, it's harder to be to stand out. Yeah, and I mean, like you can even I guess kind of compare it to Resident Evil. That game is really old. Um, I mean, two hundred fifty thousand. I mean, I guess they're happy with because it's. I mean, it was like the fourth port at this point. Not only that, but outsold the ports on PS4 and Xbox. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, compared to the other games that we've been rattling off, it didn't. It still yeah, it didn't do very well. It's almost. It feels almost kind of comparable to that sort of. Like, I mean, yeah, it's not... I, I think Resident Evil is interesting. Resident Evil is really interesting because, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Mutant Muds and Resident Evil Revelations One came out like two months apart back in the day in 2012, wow. maybe. Like, I think Resident Evil was, like, a March or February release, and then Mutant Muds was, like, a May release. So, yeah, around the same? If there possibly? were a game that came out the same month as Revelations and Revelations 2 bundle pack that sold, I don't know, that made it 
That reservation is off the top temp- of my yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, t- uh, like ten percent, like pretty much the same. No, I don't. Not, well, I don't know because lots of companies don't put out numbers in the way that you, that, so. that Atui did. I'm pretty sure Doom did really well. Doom did pretty well. I mean, it did well enough that they're bragging about how Panic Button's now doing the Wolfenstein sequel port. Yeah. So yeah, Bethesda's like all in on Switch, so I, I guess it did well. But but even that one's a little different because like this Skyrim. Boom was on Doom. What Boom? Doom was I on feel like year I want to hear like praises for Doom and not much for Skyrim. I feel like somehow Skyrim because we knew about it for so long just kind of came and went. But Doom because it's like out of nowhere and it's like oh my god. It's like also Skyrim's on every system known to man. You could probably play it on like literally a stone tablet in a cave. Like it's literally on everything. So that one's a little less a big deal. But I have seen speculation that it has sold like not even leaked numbers just like people hinting that actually did pretty well i don't know if we're talking a million but it did well that's and that's good. probably in large I mean, part because no of publishing i mean it. i have no plans to buy it but i do hope it does well because you know it it's getting a help. big ad campaign in japan since it's nintendo publishing like they're doing like subway station ads and print ads and stuff so but yeah the two things just like ah, it just sucks because they're so he's a good guy it's a good they make good games but you know as as uh developer support ramps up i think the ratio of developers that support switch to those that receive insanely strong sales on switch is going to keep skewing further well, and further away from everyone doing well, well that's just how one thing that could remedy that is a new game and hopefully treasure knots will give him the success that he's looking for yeah because that's that's the i mean thing. that's a game i've been really looking forward to the i mean that, i'm not even, i kind of forgot what even the premise was it just like a it's multi- indiana jones metroidvania like, yeah, like co-op a, yeah exactly that's, that's, <laughs> that's um, literally all it is i played it at so there's these indie mixers at a3 every year you've been to a couple of them with me it's like on a rooftop. He's gonna and they take have all it these to games. E3 this year. He is, yeah. And we played it. I think you're at the mixer with me where it was. There's one year you didn't go with me, and I don't remember. It was the year that it that I didn't go. Uh, but yeah, it was on 3ds. It was I running. It was fun. It's basically you collect treasure in every screen. That's kind of Metroidvania y. But yeah, it's co-op. You have a bunch of different characters you can play as. It's all Indiana Jones themed, without the license, of course. And it was a good game. So yeah, I think that could do well. I mean, we talked about already. He's bringing over Totes the Goat, which is only going to be five bucks on Switch. It's a mobile game that's now becoming it's basically a Switch Q-Bert. game. It's Qbert with a goat. Um, and then there's I'm also simplifying it, but that's I mean, if you need a mental image, yeah, it's, it. that's literally the perfect mental image. And then there's also uh, you already name dropped it, but um, Soccer Slammers looks pretty cool. Yeah. That's a two on two. It's perfect for Switch. It, it does everything the, that, that Mute Muds didn't do. It's a two-on-two arcade soccer game. Really well. Me too. And I like that it has kind of a sort of weird, like, crossy road meets Minecraft art style going It's on. literally Toast the Goat's as art style. Okay, sure. Because Toast the Goat is... Yeah, actually, you're Toast right. Toast the Goat is literally everything is a cube. They, yeah. I mean, that, that's how he's able that's to... That's also Q-Bert. That's how he's <laughs> oh, all, no, he's round. No, Q-Bert... He's no. round, but the world's square. No, yeah, the world's square, but even, like, the goat is a perfect square. He just took that art style and... Grafted it to soccer. Yeah, so that he could, like... I mean, he said, as he said in his wine and dine thing, like yeah, that's the blog post. Yeah, yeah, he has to post, he has to pump out all these games so that he could right live. <laughs> Basically, yeah, because he was yeah. saying if he sold the numbers that Enter the Gungeon sold, that'd be seven hundred fifty thousand dollars in revenue that the that uh, Atui could use to make more stuff. But as of now, he's gang by. So, so I mean, for 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 his sake, um, I, I like Nintendo seems to be making moves. I mean, as far as Nintendo's concerned, it's all fine because they're good. They're the download sales numbers are just going to keep climbing or keep going to get their cut. But, I mean, that's a bit facetious. In all honesty, um, Nintendo does seem to care. They seem to be on some broad level understanding the situation and trying to address it. IGN had this write-up um, about the success of indie games on Switch. And in it was an interview with a guy named Kirk Scott. He's a manager at Nintendo's dev relations team. And he was saying that they're going to continue to use the news channel on Switch. 
They're going to host an indie showcase and then directs going forward. And Nintendo's fully supporting this newer thing that's happening where Nindies are teaming up together for their own initiatives and own marketing. Like, I don't know if you saw in the eShop last month. We never talked about it on the show, but at the top of January, they had a New Year's Nindie sale where, like, four or five or six Indies all got together, cross-promoted all their games, put everything on sale, and then Nintendo pumped it out with, I think, a couple of tweets and, like, they put it on the news channel and that sort of thing. So... It was driven by developers, but Nintendo's backing it, and it seems like maybe they're going to start trying to do more of that to help some of these games. But it's hard to say if that will end up being enough. I mean, like I said, at least it's not turning Atui away. There's still a lot coming from them. In fact, uh, there's really just a lot of Nindies in general. Like we're at the, we're not quite at the crossroads here where it's do or die time for Nindies because there's a lot still coming. I mean, over the past few weeks. There's like 15, 20 games at least. And it's just like this huge influx of announcements. I almost thought we were going to get an indie, direct, uh, an indie showcase because they were coming so fast and fierce, and that usually happens right before they do one of those videos. Nothing yet, but who knows what February has to hold. But like, you know, there's 15 or 20 new games that's on top of so many we already know are coming this year. Stuff like Flipping Death or uh, the Monster Boy sequel or Bloodstained, which is the new game from the Castlevania guy, uh, Igarashi. Or the next game from 13AM Games, the Rumbo guys. There's Morphe's Law still coming, although I think that just got delayed till summer opposed to winter. Okay, it did. Um, I'm just trying to, there's Faye in a couple weeks, or Fia, as it's apparently called Durana, in a couple weeks. I think that came out this week. Yeah, Durana came out. Crypto the Necrodancer, I was going to name drop here too. That came out. Yep. Surprisingly, it's, it's slave for way later and it just popped up this past Thursday. We're getting to the point where games are coming, are being announced and released within the two week window that we usually have our episodes. Like, we don't even have time to be like, hey, did you hear ne- uh, Curse of Necrodancers coming? It's like, no, I didn't. Well, it's already out. Like, yeah, it's- they need to calm down. I can only gather Best Buy points so fast to get free eShop gift cards. You can also use real money, but I know that's asking no. a lot. <laughs> no, I cannot. But yeah, it's, um, it's coming almost too fast now, but. It, in a way, it's a good thing. In a way, it's a bad thing. I mean, we'll see what happens. But the the point is, there's a lot. And there's no way we can ever discuss them all. But there are three that kind of jumped out that we did want to highlight a little. Just draw some attention to them, in part because of their history of the system, in part or with Nintendo, in part because they're just cool ideas. Uh, first up is from Tomorrow Corporation. Uh, in the same vein as a Tui. Tomorrow Corp is a long-time big-name indie developer for Nintendo. They were the very first WiiWare game with World of Goo, as you might recall, though back then they were still 2D Boy. And uh, I don't think they've ever released a bad game. All their games are unique, different, fun, yeah, and they haven't good. Released many. That's true. They've only released three. And this new one they're releasing is 7 Billion Humans, but essentially, in everything but name, it's Human Resource Machine 2. Uh, I think it's actually their first sequel, probably because they've only put out three games before now. But yeah, it's the first sequel, and we gave impressions of the original Human Resource Machine on Wii U sometime in 2015. Well, I mean, it kind of feels like they're all in the same universe. They're all in the same universe, but they're all very different gameplay up until oh, now. Oh, yeah, 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 but... That's what I'm saying, is this yeah, is the first, like, true sequel, where they're building off... Oh, okay, they're just... Yeah. No, no, I, my, my, my brain stuck to, like, plot-wise. Oh, like, no, no, oh, no, plot-wise, they all share the same sort of offbeat arts, or... They share the same, like, dystopian, uh, social-political commentary. A- approaching a post-apocalyptic universe. Yeah, with an It's like the prequel to a post-apocalyptic universe. And all the art's always the same across them, which is kind of a cool unifying thing. But, yeah, we... Human Resource Machine... Yeah, I think we talked about it 2015. Whenever episode 112 was, I looked up that, but I forgot to check what the date was. That's when we talked about it. But you, you specifically talked about it. So like, for those who have never played it, since 7 Billion Humans is pretty similar, you want to give a quick summary of what this game is, how it works? Like, it's it's, kinda it's like a code. game that basically teaches you basics, the basics of coding. 
and you use coding to solve puzzles to essentially make um I guess like the the machine work. Wow, it's a it's kind of like hard. it's like code logic, but applies it's to code like logic. yeah, like though like there's a conveyor belt on the left that has all these symbols, and then there's a conveyor belt on the right that takes all those symbols and those numbers, and and you have to figure out a way to program everything so that it that it's automated, mm-hmm. so that you don't have to do anything. You press play, you watch your program go. If the program doesn't work properly, you'll get yelled at, and then you have to fix the error. And it's pretty cool. It's like it you definitely get an understanding of how basic programming works. Yeah, it's a really cool, unique game concept. Definitely a game that works better on mobile. Or on anything with a touchscreen. Yeah, which I mean like the Switch. Like I mean it did work well on the Wii U, but it still felt too much like a console game. It, it right. like I had a, like I reckon a friend of mine, um he saw me playing it. He he's very much into coding and he fell in love with it, but he bought it on his phone and it definitely like worked perfectly for that. Interestingly, uh, Sembo and Humans will not be available on phones in the foreseeable future. It's only as of now coming to Switch and PC. So, But Switch kind of is a big screen phone in that regard. I imagine it would work well on Switch, right? Yeah. So so for Sembo and Humans, essentially uh, they're doing what any sequel should do, which is they're taking the core idea and expanding on it. But like literally in this case, they're just expanding on it. So instead of your processes only having one human that has the output become – the input become the output – you're now dealing with large numbers of humans. And this will change up, obviously, how you go about solving puzzles because the logic's totally... Like, you can have multiple inputs that lead to multiple outputs, you can have them crisscross, whatever. It's such a change-up that they're actually saying the game has a new, as they call it, programming language. And there'll be 60 puzzles built around this new multi-person programming language. And there's also going to be an entire new soundtrack. It's going to have the same sort of art style and offbeat, like, social commentary and everything as the original, which we were talking about before. Uh, what's not announced, however, is an actual release date so for now, I guess we're just going to have to wait. But I imagine it would be this year, and I imagine you're probably going to pick it up. I mean, you seem to like the first one a lot. Most likely. Yeah, so so there you go. One sale tomorrow, Corp, right here. I said most likely. One potential sale tomorrow, Corp, right here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that that's 7 billion humans. Um, next on the list is for those who may prefer not to think uh, when playing video games. I don't like to think when playing video games. And uh, it's, it's, it, it does, and it's totally the other end of the of the Nindy spectrum here. And it is a Switch version of a game called Stick Fight, the game, or Stick Fight for short. Uh, the game is a two to four player local or online stick fighter. Like literally, all you do is take on a role of a stick figure, and you fight three other stick figures, or two, I guess, or four, or two, three, or. See, I don't like that. One, two, or three. You probably this is why I don't think when I play games. I couldn't do that math. You may have played a game similar to this like on Newgrounds, but this is definitely... Yes, it's kind of inspired by... They even yeah. say in the press release, like, it's like the stick figures of yesteryear of the internet. It's like, yep, that that is a nod to Newgrounds. But they basically ramped it up. So it's all physics-based combat, but more advanced physics, obviously. Um, you're fighting across eight different... 80, sorry, 80 different 2D levels. You have a whole bunch of different weapons... And you're not just affecting other players, you're affecting the environment itself because the game's physics, which also include what they're calling procedural animations of every single hit you do, um, those physics affect everything. So in the trailer, they're like standing on boxes and the boxes start tipping over and stuff like that. Like it's it's just pandemonium. And like the best comparison I could think of besides the new ground one is probably like a 2D version of Gang Beast. Yeah, the movements are Beast. very similar. Like all the characters yeah. look like they don't really have full control of their body. Like, they're, like, being yanked and pulled all over the place. Yeah. It's also reminiscent of... It just looks funny. Yeah, it's, it's always entertaining. It's kind of reminiscent as well of that uh, Switch indie game that still doesn't come out, uh, Saucer Sports Club. It was yeah. in 
one of the that movies kind of spotlights. Like, that one kind yeah. of fell to the wayside. It's now apparently coming out in fall 2018. I looked it up when, when writing the notes. I'm like, fall 2018? That last I heard is coming out fall 2017. Well, at least they have an idea of when it's coming out. Unlike you know, Pocket Rumble or Pocket, Pocket Rumble. Rumble? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Who knows what's going on with that one? That's kind of the one. We're that, approaching a year since it was supposed to come out. We just yeah, and well, Sausage Sports Club was a year delayed, so we're on the same. They're on the same level, just one's known publicly and one isn't, I guess. But, yeah, that's the problem with uh, working with indie developers. I mean, we already got, um, I was going to call it <laughs> Wakamele, but we got Smash Out. Smash Out? Brawl Smash Out. Out. Brawl Out. <laughs> I know, I already forgot the name. <laughs> and we got Brawl Out. And getting they, a physical copy soon, too. Yeah, and they already announced that um, Rivals of V3 is also coming, too. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, none of the fighting games. Pocket Rumble's missed, I hate to say it, Pocket Rumble missed its window. It's still, it's, it'll, gonna, still, it'll still be the only new 2D fighter. That's true. So it still that's has true. Unless you count, it. unless you count uh, SNK her- heroines, it's not that's 2D in art, but it's 2D in no, plane of they, play. They call it 2.5D. Yeah. But yeah, that one, that one's still different in that because that's like a team fighter. Um, Pocket Rumble still one v one with Smash Brothers style control. So right. Yeah, so that makes it very interesting. They apparently had some serious issues with the net play for it, but yeah, which is definitely. I'd rather them take this year time to fix that out because that is a deal breaker. Uh, yeah, especially yeah, especially in this day and age. Even right. if it's a throwback to the Neo Geo fighters, like you can't not have working online to, in 2018. Which fun fact? Um, SNK Heroines was originally a, a Neo Geo game. Oh it's, really? It's called SNK Gal Fighters. I, I, oh yeah. I, I forgot to bring it. I forgot to bring it up last time. That's but, right. But that was the original like all female SNK fighting cast, and right. then this is like a spiritual sequel. I right guess. for the 40th anniversary of SNK. Yeah. yeah, this all makes sense now. I that does sound familiar. During that brief window when Neo Geo was a thing that people cared about, it was there. Yeah. yeah. But but anyway, yeah. Um, stick fight is none of that. <laughs> stick fight's just silly pandemonium. Um, and Pocket Rumble actually looks exactly like that SNK girl fighting game, like visually. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. anyway. I think SNK, correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't uh, that one of the final Neo Geo games. Yeah, it was. So it, it definitely maximized the potential of the hardware, and obviously Pocket Rumble and an ode to the hardware is going to do the best the hardware had to offer. So makes yeah. sense. But yeah, I just gonna say about Stick Fight. I don't know. I I'm weirdly into these sort of mindless fighting games. Like, I, I get why, you know, you, for example, are hyped, let's say, or will most likely pick up 7 billion humans. I understand the appeal of that. Turning code logic into a game is really cool. But I've just become kind of a sucker over the past few years to sort of super casual pick-up-and-play, like, fighters where the stakes are essentially zero, and it's just wacky and weird and funny, and, like, you're just playing to play. There's no end goal. Like, obviously you want to win, but it doesn't... There's no deeper thing here. There's no combos. There's no, like, meta game. It's just you whack a dude in the face with your fist that you can barely control, and it's funny and fun. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with those games. I'm just saying this is such a left turn from a typical fighting game, this, like, weird subgenre that's popped up, that I'm, I'm digging it. I've, I've liked it since I tried Game Beats for the first time. We'll see how long it takes before people get sick of it. But for now, I'm, I'm on board with Stick Fight. It'll be out within a few months. So. Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't really matter if you get sick of it because it's definitely one of those games that you just get to fill in your library of more, like, quick, casual multiplayer games. Especially this one, like, which is only multiplayer. Yeah, like, it'll fit, like I'm definitely getting it because it'll fit right in with, like, the Inverses and, yeah. like, the Jackbox games and and um, Astro Duel. Like, just those kind mm-hmm. of quick pick-up-and-plays. Yeah, it's perfect for that. Um, doesn't take long to explain. Maybe you hit someone. You're explain. a stick figure, and you hit him. Yeah. So, 
So we'll, we'll, you know, it's on a few months. Uh, again, though, just to be clear, no single player whatsoever. So I hope no one's planning to fight AI stick men because they don't exist. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's one that I'm sure the two of us are going to get mileage of. Uh, further down the line, the third game on our list here is one called Pado Box, which looks like a weird love child of like Punch Out and Mad World. It's actually Pato Box. Pato means duck in Spanish. Well, that's why. I should probably learn Spanish, I guess, because I'm going to I'm going to white it up and call it Pato Box. <laughs> Pato Box. But yeah, if, uh, if for those who remember, it's called a Duck Box. Duck Box. Um, for those who remember Mad World, it was a Platinum Games release from the Wii days. It was black and white with red. This and kind of comic book looking. This is black and white and comic book looking, no red. But you play as a man with a duck's head because, of course, you do, and he's a boxer because, of course, he is. And um, looks like they literally traced over like the. Like Little Mac from the back, pretty much. Yeah. And basically, all you do is your your company, which is called uh, Duck Flock, your sponsor. They betrayed him. They betrayed poor Pato, and he um, decides to take it upon himself to rake his way through their building and fight all those who wronged him. So I'm assuming he's a duck head because you duck in boxing. I'm guessing that's where that comes from. Or someone just has a really weird imagination, but I'm totally into it. Uh, but yeah, so here's where the mashup of like Mad World and Punch Out really sort of comes into play. In that it looks like Punch Out graphics wise, as I was saying, but you also navigate fight to fight by walking around in like a third person behind the back view, all of Mad World, and you do like interactive cutscenes. Kind of reminds me of Doom, like the puzzles. way that you're. Yeah, it's like kind of Doomish. It, yeah, it's actually very Doomish. It also has yeah. like the level spin around you effect too. I definitely um like I like well. Like, I was watching. The, I, was watching I was watching the trailer. My reaction went from like, "Oh, this looks like a like a punch out like knockoff," mm-hmm. but then like it just kept kept getting more absurd and absurd. And I'm like, "Wow, this is actually awesome!" They actually just went with the weird and like went and embraced so it. Yeah. Like, like so, like punch out. You are ultimately doing fights. I think there's seven different bosses. Of course, they're all crazy themed. They have to look for their tells and find their patterns. But the themes are great. Like, there's a chef who has like a pot of soup. Yeah, like, then I think like that they're great. not like you're not fighting other boxes. You're literally just fighting, fighting a chef with a giant pot. Yeah, you're just fighting. Like he doesn't even have normal like box animation. He's just using his ladle. He, to yeah, he's literally you. spilling hot liquids on you. And yeah. as a duck, you presumably don't want to get cooked. So, so you duck. So you duck, or you dodge. No, what's the, what's his name? Oh, we said, or you... Yeah, I was going to... I was trying to set up the joke to be using it, duck incorrectly, like they're using duck for boxing as duck for his head. Yeah, but it, I was trying to do but the it word, works for both of them. It doesn't work like that in Spanish. Oh. Like, the word for duck isn't... I mean, for pato isn't that makes the sense, same for no. ducking, which is like agachar. So, well, that's a worse name than pato, man. Which isn't so. an animal from yes, my... From your understanding. But and, and the nice thing is, um, just to slowly, very quickly pivot away from my horrible attempt at a joke that backfired in my face, um, there's also a hard mode. So yeah, there's only seven bosses, but you can go back and do it again in a hard mode, so that's kind of nice. Um, I think for anyone that's slightly like, what about this? Go watch the trailer. You'll completely understand it by the end. It's only like 43 seconds. We have a link to it on the blog post, but it won't be out till later in 2018. So you have plenty of time to watch the trailer and watch it again and learn the proper Spanish for duck versus duck. So there's time for that. But but yeah, these are just a few a few of the nindies we're keeping an eye on. Before we wrap up on Switch though, I kinda wanna revisit Labo for a second. Because I don't know if you want to, but I want to. So since I have notes, I'm just gonna do it. Because if uh, I'll, I'll I'll wait. Well, I, I just gotta say uh if, if Nindies and traditional games are like one side of the Switch story this year, then Labo's gonna be the other side and the more out there stuff that comes with it. And 
it seems like Nintendo's expecting big things out of Labo. Like, according to Kimishima in the presentation, applications for the U.S. hands-on demo sessions, the Nintendo Labo Studio or whatever they're calling it, those applications in the first four days exceeded the number of slots they had available to go try Labo by over 50, like 50 times over. That's a lot of applications to go fold things out of cardboard. So that that seems like a sign that there's definitely interest out there. And I, I mean, I don't know about you. Your I'm going to wait makes me think you don't care. But some of the recent tidbits coming out of the press hands-on that just happened in New York this past week, pretty neat stuff. Actually, like really neat stuff. I mean, first, there's just the fact that apparently the IR camera in the right Joy-Con is way more advanced than we thought, like significantly. For one thing, it works as an actual video camera. Do you see any of this? I don't even know if you saw any of this. No, it's, I did. it's crazy. Like when you're controlling the little robot you build in Labo, you can toggle off or on this view of what the ro- of what the right Joy-Con sees in front of it. So kind of like the, the robot's point of view. And obviously the frame rate isn't spectacular or anything, but the fact that it even offers that is kind of neat. And the fact that it has a night vision view and can also do heat mapping to auto drive itself or to show you the heat map is even crazier. So like you could put your hand in front of the Joy-Con and start moving your hand around and the little robot will follow your hand. This I guess is just a natural evolution of the whole it can detect rock, paper, or scissors when you make a shape with your hand. But I kind of assumed it was just monitoring the shape it made, like the 2D shadow or something, not like actually doing heat based IR tracking. Like that's crazy. That's really cool. There's so much tech in the Switch that we just don't even know is there. It's, it's really neat. Uh, but more significantly than that, that was just kind of fun. More significantly, though, Nintendo fully showed off the Toy Lab Garage, which is... That's not its name. It's the Toy Con Garage. That makes more sense. Is it Toy Lab or Toy Con? Toy Con. Yeah. I, I wrote my notes wrong. <sighs> That's two errors in one period of an hour and... 20 minutes. I might as well just resign from the podcast 28 now. 28 minutes. 28 minutes. Three errors in one hour and 28 minutes. I might as well just resign from the podcast. Would you like to take over? Let me just, let me just close my laptop. I'm and I got lead. No. But, this um, is the last episode of the Round Nintendo podcast. Yep, and that's how it ends, guys. Three errors and three strikes and you're out, right? Yeah. But uh, no, I was going to say that the Toy oh, Con Garage, serious. I wasn't serious. If you thought it was serious, whew, you don't know me at all. Uh, but yeah, Toy Con Garage. Um, we kind of knew a little bit about this last episode. It's the idea that you can use Labo software to kind of build your own things and have it come to life in different ways. But we didn't really know the extent of it, and the extent of it actually is really impressive. It turns out it's a really elaborate version of If This Then That on the Switch. So the idea is you make any single Switch action trigger any other Switch action. So you can have flicking the control stick on one Joy-Con vibrate the other, or you can have the extension... uh, the extension of one action do something on the tablet instead like there's going to be levels to this that even the games don't come with by default which is actually kind of cool where it gets more interesting even is that you can link together up to 10 of these actions they're all represented i think it was like you have like a screen with these two rectangles and you can drag in blocks and the blocks represent the actions up to 10 of them that you can daisy chain to do all sorts of stuff and then beyond that you can actually modify any of the pre-made toy cons and how they work to work with one another or in new or different ways. So like you can take the example I saw from Polygon is you can take the RC car toy con, or you can take the motorcycle handlebar toy con, and you can mix and match them in a way that you can then steer the RC car using the motorcycle handlebars and the motion controls that come with it. That's all stuff you can build in Toy Con Garage using the kind of this and that block systems. So it's pretty elaborate. 
is what I'm saying. Like, up to this point, I feel like Nintendo primarily talked about Labo being this customizable thing at aesthetics level, you know, like, the color of your house, or put a sticker on your fishing rod, or paint your, or draw your RC card to look like a caterpillar, or whatever. But this really goes one step further, because it's literally all the game experiences you have can be fully customized. And it's an interesting extra layer that, in my mind, makes the whole package just that much more appealing and kind of better justifies the price. Because some people... We were saying last episode, like, hey, you're paying for the experience, not just the game. And the games, I admit, they look rather shallow from the uh, footage I've seen from the press day. But having the cardboard, building it, playing the game, remixing the game, building your own things, doing the if this, then that, basically having endless possibilities, it's not like a build once and you're done type of thing, Labo. It seems like you're going to be mixing and matching and remixing and doing a lot of things a lot of time. Which is That'll great, take a lot of time. Because there'll so. be a lot of trial and error, which means there'll be a lot of Learning. error, which means there's going to be a lot of piles of useless cardboard that you could just throw away. Wait, no, why would there be useless cardboard? No, because like if you could program these um, Labo things to do whatever you want or yeah. whatever like the limits are, you're definitely going to like venture off and just like oh, cut up yeah, your own yeah. cardboard, yeah. and you're going to have things that just don't work. And, That's the, true. and the nice thing is that unlike... Eh, actually, never mind. I kind of take that back. But the nice <laughs> thing is that you can just, just, you can just dispose of it quickly. Not, like in the, or you can retrofit it to do something else. I mean, it's all just unfolding yeah, and refolding. I, well, I was gonna kind of kind of make a comparison to Mindstorm, but then I was gonna say like, well, you don't have to throw in the pieces because you could reuse those pieces to build something else. Right. But on the other hand, I guess you don't have to have a little suitcase full of things taking up space somewhere. That's because true. It's cardboard because you could just get more. I bet later. you could also use cardstock for some of the things you're doing too, if you want to like diversify. That's your true. Actually, if you diversify your materials, as long as it supports the weight of the Joy-Con, that's all that really matters. Wait, people you, are. You know, I just read. You, people can use, three, you, you could probably use wheels and gears to like get the rubber bands to move. And, and people are probably going to 3D print stuff and make like more permanent versions of things. Like this is there's a whole door of, or a whole door opening a whole door of possibilities. There we go. I can talk. Um, and I, I guarantee you, you know, after seeing some of the stuff I saw at the New York event. I'm pretty sure Nintendo's going to start selling additional cardboard sets. No games, just extra cardboard. Because, like, they were showing in, like, videos from the event. Like, there are fleets of RC cars that all look different and do different things. I can see kids making multiple sets of these things for different scenarios. Or, like, okay, I have my, like, you know, my Tron bike RC car or whatever. Now I want to make this or that or do a race with a friend. But we're theming it around Pioneers or I don't know why a kid would care about Pioneers. But you get my point. Like, there's so much possibility here. So, like, I don't know if it's enough to get me personally to jump in but it's, it's a cool idea i mean i i don't see you necessarily gravitating towards this either you're, you're, you're it, not makes really, it, it makes it more appealing but yeah. but you're not really much of a tinkerer are no, you no not too much yes yeah, i mean it i don't know for very specific things and cardboard is not one of the very specific like, things maybe it's like more software only kind of deals yeah yeah. I mean, I, I could see myself maybe jumping in if Labo becomes like its ecosystem, like a level itself. editor kind of deal, right? Those are the kind of things that would mess with more, right? Which is literally the polar opposite of this because this is all tangible, physical, real world stuff, yeah. But I, I could see myself. What I started to say is I could see myself if the, like if Labo becomes an ecosystem unto itself, I could totally see myself possibly eventually caving because uh, like we speculated this was going to happen. This idea that. Some games would become Labo enhanced. I think we spent a while talking about how Yoshi could do that last episode. And, you know, it just means maybe there's a side mode that uses Labo in some way or some sort of optional support. And if more and more games do that to the point where it becomes its own little bubble or its own little ecosystem, then yeah, I will probably jump in. But the weird thing is it's already starting to happen. And what's perhaps the biggest sign that it's a 
third party that's suggesting this and indicating this means this is probably going to be a lot bigger than we think it's going to be, Labo as a whole. Specifically, what I'm talking about is Japanese mobile game maker GREE, or GREE as I call them for short. Uh, they announced they're bringing over Fishing Star to the Switch. Fishing Star is a popular social fishing game that's had mobile devices for years now over in Japan. I think it's worldwide as well. But um, one of the big gimmicks of the game is crazy different fishing rods to use and collect and that sort of thing. And they are saying, or at least according to the Wall Street Journal, they're saying that um, Toy-Con consideration is already underway. They're looking at bringing the fishing rod Toy-Con, so the cardboard fishing rod, into Fishing Star in some way, having it work with it in some way. And if more and more games start doing stuff like that, we're probably going to hit a tipping point where I'm like, well, now the stuff I'm interested in does completely sync up with Labo, so I guess I guess I will pull the trigger. I mean, it, it, would that convince you at any point? Like, if, if your games, like the games you actually care about, start having, like, optional Labo things, would you be like, well, maybe I'll buy one and just see what it's like? Mm. Or you still go hold out? Case-by-case basis. Ah, that's fair. So it's, Fishing it, Star it, it, not going to do it for you? No, it's really <laughs> hard to, to say that. I mean, like, like I, I retweeted out someone that made a Bowser out oh, of cardboard. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, I mean, I do already have the real thing, courtesy of Jason. But I did, I did give that to you, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, something along those lines would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, time will tell. I think I think we kind of touched on this last episode, but I think we're going to start with smaller Labo projects that are catered to this specific demographic, and then they'll expand outward. Very much the Switch footprint, uh, audience footprint thing, where they just keep expanding outward and outward, but now it'd be Labo as well. But that, in a nutshell, is the state of the Switch. We went from the same sales to the rise of indies and the fall of indies and the rise of indies again to cardboard. And what a great state it is. And what a great state it is. So um, 3DS is next on the list. A little less exciting. A lot briefer. Still noteworthy because uh, they managed to move 3 million 3DSs this past holiday season. Now granted, and Kimishima admitted this in the financial briefing, that is lower than the year prior. But hey, what what do you expect when a console's in its seventh holiday season? Like that that's, you know, you. I would not think it would even move 3 million. Um, and you also have to, of course, factor in the fact that there wasn't as big of a holiday release this year. Pokemon Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon did well. In fact, they're already the third best-selling, like, third version of a Pokemon game in franchise history, only bested by Black and White 2 and Pokemon Platinum. But they, of course, didn't do as well as Pokemon Sun and Moon. And as a result of that, um, software sales are down year over year overall. So, again... Depends on how you look at things. Like, hearing 17 million games were sold in one quarter, it's kind of like, oh, well, Switch sold 52. That's a very big difference. But then it's like, yeah, but you're talking about 7 million games on a system that first released in 2011. And didn't have any new releases outside of, like, a half upgrade of a game that came out a year prior. And Metroid and Fire Emblem earlier in the year. So, again, I don't know if 17 million is anything to scoff at. And uh, what's interesting is a lot of those game sales of that 17 million actually are older evergreen titles uh nintendo was saying in their financial briefing that they shipped not necessarily sold but shipped millions of copies of old games like mario kart 7 1.7 million more mario kart 7s will put out will be put out in the world between last april and this coming march wow yeah 1.2 million new super mario brothers 2s will be out this fiscal year which kind of boggles my mind of all games to bring back why bring back the worst handheld side-scrolling Mario game. Like, no offense to Mario 2 or New Super Mario Bros. 2, but it's not the best one. They focus way too much on the coin thing, you know? Mm, I like it. 
I liked it, but it's not the it's the weakest of the offerings. I'd say. Well, I don't know. I thought it was better than the first one. Really? Yeah. Interesting. And then I don't know. I mean, it's all sequential. I just think always the I just I I thought at least the new Super Mario Bros. series that each each one they just kept getting better than the last. I th- I mean like level design wise and everything was fine. I just didn't like the everything's like coins, 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 coins. I don't know. That's just me. Like I thought I thought um. Well, I mean, everyone, the way like people are different and they have different opinions. So that's true. Yeah. That that's exactly the premise of a podcast. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, one point two million of those. Even Super Mar- Mario Land three, Mario three D Land. There we go. That's a game from twenty eleven. For those keeping score at home, they shipped one point one eight million more copies of that, or they will have shipped by the end of March. Now, granted, that's an Nintendo Select, so it's properly reintroduced. But the point is, we've basically entered full on coasting phase for the three DS. Like Nintendo doesn't plan to. Su- to end support at all since you know they're selling things they're selling 3 million more systems they're selling 17 more million more games but they also probably aren't investing much else at this point I mean at least in terms of new releases like Kimishima didn't directly say this in the briefing but if you read between the lines that's kind of what it comes off as like he did say they have new software in development which technically is true they had Detective Pikachu they have Sushi Striker at some point this year but then he spends another four or five sentences of his transcript going on and on about how they're going to leverage the rich library of Nintendo DS and it's, you know, and push for games for the new consumers and provide games for the people who already had it. But never does he say they're new games. He keeps talking about the legacy and the library and the previously released stuff. So I think we are definitely in full on coasting mode. There will be maybe one or two surprise games, unannounced games, beyond Detective Pikachu and Sushi Striker, but I'd be shocked if we see anything more than that. Which, to me, is totally fine. I don't I don't necessarily need to touch my 3DS much anymore. I'll get Detective Pikachu. That'll probably be it. But Switch is pretty much it. I mean, when's the last time you turned on your 3DS? Because I know you play it even less than I've played mine these days. Definitely not. You still play it? Yeah. When's the last time you turned it on? Yesterday. What? I play it, like, every other day. I could have sworn you said previously you like no oh you don't buy new things. For I don't it. buy new things for yeah, it, but, but I still, still play, play I still I still play Donkey Kong Country too frequently. I still play Rhythm Heaven frequently. When's the last time you bought something for it? Let's try that. Mm, I don't know, probably whenever like Ace Attorney came out. Ace Attorney uh, Six, so less in twenty so sixteen or seventeen. You are probably why they're slowing down the new games. Because you're very content with the old games, and you'll keep playing those, and they can sell those to new people. But well, you don't, mean, necessarily, they don't necessarily make new games. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm the just only saying game, coasting. The, the only new game I would have bought in is Metroid, but, I mean, I survived. Right. I bought that. But, yeah, I guess um, I guess my point is, like, they're, they're do, the 3DS is chugging along without the need to make new games. People that have it are happy with what they have. People that don't have the games can go buy the Evergreen games. Like, it's kind of win-win. So, yeah, I don't think... I think it's all evergreen, all budget system all the time now. That's pretty much it. And uh, nothing makes that clearer to me than just how much time we spent on mobile and Switch. We're at an hour 41 minutes, and we only now start talking about 3DS, and we're already done talking about 3DS. That's literally all they had to say about 3DS in the financial briefing, from the numbers to the info, and that's it. So that goes to show this thing's on its last legs, which is fine. It lived a wonderful life, and it has many great games that you still play all the time, apparently, which I didn't know. So, you know. But you don't know to fill the library. What? What's next on the docket? Wait, what did you say? <laughs> what was that? SNES Classic Sales uh, Formula well, Units? Well, we're, yeah. It's, yeah. Huh. So, that, you have brought that us to our, you have brought, yeah, you brought us to our final bucket, which is everything else. Nintendo Store just parsed everything, threw everything in at the end. And yeah, the Super Nintendo Classic, the SNES Classic, sold 4 million units worldwide since it came out in September. 
That is a lot because that is a significant uptick over the NES Classic this time a year ago, having only sold 1.5 million. Now, to be fair, the Super Nintendo is out two more months than the NES. I get that. But it's still, if that's the case, um, the Super Nintendo, if it came out in November, is still outpacing it. So yeah, Nintendo has turned around. Also Amiibo, if you're wondering, that's chugging along as well. It's at 9 million figures sold, 5 million cards sold. It seems to be coming a bit of a normal pace now. It's not actually dropping or anything. So, like post-Switch, that's been about the number it's been at. So it seems like Nintendo found a way to balance it correctly so it doesn't go the Disney Infinity, Lego Dimensions, Skylanders route, which is good because that's just more ways it can pump their IP onto store shelves. But what's actually interesting about the Super Nintendo, to go back to that for a minute, speaking of pumping IP out, they are not planning to ever, well, I shouldn't say ever, but they're not planning to discontinue the Super Nintendo. The original Nintendo, the original NES Classic, was going to was a limited time thing, and people flipped out and hated it. So now they bring it back to address that, but they don't plan to stop making them once they bring them back. Or Super Nintendo, they're gonna keep making. I think NES is the same boat where they don't plan to stop, and that's because according to Kimishima, they now suddenly view these devices as quote an opportunity to garner interest in Nintendo Switch from those who have not interacted uh, with video games in a long time or ever. How? How did it take Nintendo a full year to come to that realization? Like, shouldn't they have realized that after the frenzy of the NES started, like, a month in? I know. It, it just kind of boggles my mind, that company that's... It's like, oh, get those, like, lapsed gamers. Like, oh, I remember used to ha- I used to have this, and they'll play games. And they're like, huh, I wonder what the, what the new ones are up to. And like, oh, all right. Yeah, like, literally, their entire strategy as a company has been to expose as many people as possible to their games in whatever capacity they thought was best. And the end goal is to get them to come back to the dedicated device. So to your point just now... This is a way to do that. This is literally the best way to do that. If they want to do merchandise, they have the theme park, they have the mobile apps. If they want to do smartphones, they have games that funnel people back. If they want to do cool little things that people go crazy over and like get scalped and have like a huge frenzy around them. If they want their Beanie Baby equivalent, they had that a year ago with the NES Classic. They have that right now with the Super Nintendo Classic. And yet only now do they realize all these lapsed gamers will potentially come to Switch. I guess maybe they just had to wait and see if that was the case. I don't know, but either way, they're doing it now. Um, it kind of makes me wonder if maybe at one point traditional virtual console was going to be on Switch before they decide, decided to go the uh, classic game selection route or whatever. Like, cause I, I, like a year ago, I could, see, I could see them a year ago being like, oh, we don't want to do the NES because we want to sell those games at five bucks a pop like we used to. But perhaps they're, they've come to their senses. I mean, whatever it is. Whatever it is, it's easy money for them. It's easy marketing for them. They now realize it. They're now acting on it, so that's good. And to be fair, Nintendo, for the most part, they have known what they were doing with this whole IP-first strategy of theirs because we managed to go this whole episode without mentioning it, but uh, Nintendo's operating profits. We talked about all the individual components, but overall, the company's holiday quarter this year was up 261% compared to a year ago. They made 116.5 billion yen, which is over a billion U.S. dollars. That is the very same billion U.S. dollars that Iwata pledged during the Wii U days would be Nintendo's ultimate goal, to return to, quote, Nintendo-like profits. And those profits he cited as being at least a billion dollars. So they did it. They finally did it. They're back where they were. They're actually at the highest quarterly profit they've ever, not ever, they've had since December 2009. So eight years later, they did it. Iwata's vision, even if he wasn't around to see it through, was seen through. Which is really, which is really cool as a Nintendo fan to see, you know, them rebound this strong, and it's certainly full steam ahead on the IP strategy too, because they're making a Mario movie, 
nothing could be more clear as we're going all in on IP than making a Mario movie. So we kind of already knew about this. It closed out the financial briefing. It closes out our news. But uh, they have confirmed the reports that the Wall Street Journal first put out like six months ago that them and Illumination are teaming up to make a movie. It's being co- – anime movie. It's being co-produced by Shigeru Miyamoto and the uh, founder of Illumination, Chris Metadondri. I think is how you say his name. And um, yeah, it's actually a thing now. So, I mean, you're, you're an animation guy. Thoughts? Yay? Nay? Eh? Um – I guess air right now because that's like a happy medium. I mean, Illumination, I mean, I don't know, their animation is very, in, I don't know, middle of the road for what I would consider feature film animation. Like, it doesn't do anything too spectacular, but it also, but it's still feature film quality. Like, it's still sure. good. Like, I mean, they do some things that are more interesting than Pixar in just terms of just the visual appeal. Mm-hmm. Like, their characters just are more cartoony overall but it's not sony pictures animation levels of wackiness where like i just love how those characters move like just like any like hotel Cancel- hotel transylvania mm-hmm. like the way those characters move in that movie is just i don't know i just i wish more movies did that it, that's a very like old cartoony way of moving but i don't know story-wise i don't know they haven't really put out anything amazing besides like maybe the first despicable me and i watched that movie and i enjoyed it but it didn't have any kind of like i don't know i quickly forgot about it until the sequel came out then the other sequel came out and the other sequel came out and then the spinoff came out and then the other spinoff yeah came out. i mean i mean like they, they have that through line that all their movies are successful like money wise yeah for the most part i think they had like a dud somewhere but yeah for the most part, yeah like they're all they're just good at making money, I guess. Like, Sing, like, there there wasn't really thing, anything special about Sing, but it made a lot of money, and it's getting a sequel. Right. Minions, I saw on the Minions plane, is just and, a cash cow. Uh, I don't know. I, I did not like that movie. Well, but, they, Minions is a weird example, because no, yeah. they may specifically cash in on the pro- the property of Minions, but now yeah. I'm worried, if that didn't turn out well, what could happen to Mario? Yeah, but uh, that, that movie's getting a sequel. But, I mean, that movie was definitely just aimed just at kids. They, right. they could not care less for... The, the parents taking the kids to watch him. Those poor pants had to hear banana over and over for two straight hours. Jeez. <laughs> oh, but, um, yeah, so that's kind of, I mean, if there was something to worry about, I guess it'd be that. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that the writers do that, that are going to be mean, working if, on it. And if Miyamoto's co-producing, there's hope that he'll keep it Nintendo-y in a way. Yeah, and, I mean, the one thing that I guess I'm curious how they'll handle is um, every movie since Despicable Me has had the Minions, like, bringing down the Illumination logo. That's, like, their... Their giant like THX, right, right. Thing. The the bumper, the, the yeah. logo bumper. Yeah, their yeah. logo bumper. So like, I know, like, am I willing to bet that they're gonna have the minions like yell out illumination, and you're gonna have like the toads like walk in, and they're gonna interact or something, and that's gonna be the only. Are you saying the toads are gonna walk in and go hi? That's gonna be like their only interaction between. <laughs> well, I don't know if they'll say hi, but that's gonna be the only interaction between. Spike minions on the and sound tracking for me saying hi. Sorry, <laughs> but I don't know. It's like cautious optimism. I mean, I I don't know. Personally, I I think Miyamoto could help Randy, but also Miyamoto some weird stuff. So I mean, I also it's not like it felt like sorry. It, it's also no, it's it also doesn't reflect really like they was much of a saying who was going to get the studio. I mean, like they're working with Universal already. Universal owned Illumination. It's yeah. So the talks with Illumination started two years ago. So I don't know what that relation with the time frame for the theme park talks were. I know the theme park's been announced for like a year. I but mean, just, I don't know, and they're separate divisions, so what, they might not. And Sony was in the running at one point. So I mean, they might not. One I mean, day I mean Universal has, like, Illumination stuff at their park. It just makes yeah. sense that, like, 
not like oh it just makes perfect they have their gift shop right there they have more it does movie, make sense more movie regard. tie-in yeah. stuff it, that's true. this is why it's like there is no other studio they could have picked that's true that's true i i am curious though in terms of the movie itself what is what is the movie gonna be about like the plot they could go original they could adapt an exi- existing game to kind of mix and match like they're not billing it interestingly in the press release as a mario movie it's a movie starring mario so i'm like okay that sounds like how they describe the mario rpgs like yeah he's the main character but there's a lot of stuff going on around him like mario and luigi or paper mario like it's about him but it's also not about him so i wonder if they're gonna like adapt one of those somehow or pull in some elements from my outlandish prediction is that it's gonna we're gonna follow a toad a toad is gonna be the main character with kevin hart and, and he's gonna be. <laughs> oh, we're back to this, yes. And, and he's gonna be like the the main protagonist, so to speak. But Mario will be like along for the journey. But it's really about that Toad, just because it kind of gives them a way to have a talking character that's always talking and not have Mario do a lot of the talking. Like Mario will come and go, but it's gonna be really about that Toad. I don't know. Perhaps why. Captain yeah. Toad. No, it's, it's, it's gonna be an original like Toad uh, original. character. I swear, if they minionize the Toads, I'm gonna be pissed. Also. Please, it, this won't. This is not all what you're suggesting, but do not please illumination. Do not do a fish out of water New Donk City style plotline. It was perfectly executed in Mario Odyssey. It's just the right amount of weird versus like not weird. We don't need a whole movie of Mario being like, "Why is this pipe silver and not green like mine is?" What? Like we don't need that for two hours. Do not do that. But yeah, I think you might be onto something where he's a side character that kind of comes and goes. In the same way that, like, Detective Pikachu's a Pokemon movie, but also, like, not really at all a Pokemon movie. It makes sense. I, w- I think... I still think a Mario and Luigi game could be kind of... Or movie could be kind of interesting. I wouldn't... I don't know if they should go full-on from the plot. Like, I don't know if we want to retread the Fawful storyline or anything like that. Oh, yeah, but, because like, everybody, like, mainstream audiences know about Fawful. No, no, no. More just, like, I don't think a direct game adaptation would necessarily work, but... You know, the thing that's nice about those games is they're more intricate plots. The writing's already super, like, punchy. There's a lot of odd, interesting characters that could kind of be, like, uh, those generic, offbeat side characters that every kid's animation seems to have. It's like there's room to leverage stuff from those, but I would like to see something original. And I think if Miyamoto's personally involved, they're probably doing something original. Yeah, or else they would we'll just probably, need a spot check with Nintendo. We'll probably see some them. new characters, but yeah. I'm pretty sure if we do see new characters, they'll most likely be, like... Kind of like like a new Toad character with a name that will yeah. be merchandise like no other. Like Ted, Ted Toad Junior the Third. No, yeah, but yeah. So that that's the Mario movie. Um, we like we sort of already knew it was coming, but now we know it's coming for real. So there's that, and it also nicely wraps up our news. So as we switch over to what we're playing, we have two games. Um, we've been meaning to talk about them for a little while, but finally time allows us to do so. First up, it actually just got physical release a couple weeks ago, so it's sort of coming back around and being relevant. Uh, that is Rocket League, which you've played a lot more than I have, so I don't know if you want to sort of kick things off like you like you do the, the, the ball in, in, in Rocket I'm just going to stop. How do you want me to get in the driver's seat of these impressions? Perhaps. Perhaps if you want to just like... Nope, Rev doesn't work here. If you want to just rev up your thoughts here and get going. Oh. Nope. Just, just, um, just start that engine of Let me preface this power. by saying um, I, I suck at Rocket League. And I when, suck at Rocket League too. And when I say I suck, it's funny because I was playing with a friend yesterday who, I don't know, like I said I suck, but when I was playing against him, I guess, I don't know, I scored him like 10-0. But that's, but that's how I score against everyone else that I play that doesn't know how to play the game. I, I learned yesterday that you could drift. For some reason, I would ignore the drift button. You know about drift? 
I always um Dude, it's the best way to spin around and get the back to the ball real fast. Yeah, I always I still suck. I, I, I always do like the mother move that kinda got the job done, but yeah, do I think it'd be better. Yeah. Um other than that, um I don't know, Rocket League it, it's it's a great game that fits on the Switch with all the basic multiplayer, not that hard to explain. You have it's car soccer. It's literally gonna be soccer slammers but without cars. Or Mario Strikers without Mario and with cars. Oh, Mario no. is there because of the car with the Mario hat. So, well, I mean, two v two. Yeah, at most no, or one v one. Strikers is three v three. No, I'm talking or about not Strikers. Sorry, uh, Rocket League is three v three. No, it's two. So there's multiple modes. We have up to four people on your team if you play online. Because I've done that, where it's me and three others versus them and three others. Oh well, regardless. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That's that's literally just. The game. There's not much else to say. Maybe about it's three it. on it, three. It's, just car it's either two others or three others, but there's more than you and one other. And as far as describing the game, it's just car soccer. Just score the yeah. ball into your opponent's goal. If you do, you get a very huge explosion that knocks everybody like super far away from the goal. You can also customize how the explosion looks. There's a lot of customability in the game. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, you have a boost when you. Co- I don't know. I'm not. I'm not making. <laughs> so, so I'm not making Rock- it, I'm, I don't know. I'm making it sound like I'm not well, very enthused Rocket about League- it. But the thing about the game, at least that I find, is that. I don't find the game very fun whenever I'm playing against strangers. Like, it just gets really boring really fast for me. I think um, part of it's just the, dip- the difficulty, maybe? No, it's... Because aren't you know. saying you usually it, it's aren't a, good unless it's against someone you who's worse than you? No, that's still not it. It's just... I mean, I, I still have fun when I'm playing against yeah. someone that's way better than me. Okay. I mean, that's... The thing is just... um, The game, I feel, lends itself a lot to... Tons of gloating and bragging whenever you do a score a goal, whenever mm-hmm. your friend scores on themselves or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And when you're playing online, I don't know, it just feels pointless to me. Well, technically, technically, if you want to gloat and brag, when you're playing online, there are two options to do so. And this actually brings up a, pet, a not a pet peeve, but a weird thing about Rocket League I noticed. And that is because I also played and also suck. Uh, that is. There are quick actions to send like little pre-written messages to someone, which could be gloating, bragging, congratulating, sad, whatever. You know, there's actually like four different full sets. You press a button, it loads up that like emotion, and then there's multiple sets for that. Or if you want to get real crazy in the middle of a match, you can actually bring up a keyboard. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. If there's like an on-screen keyboard, you can bring up. It might only be between matches, but you can actually type things out. Oh yeah. But again, it's nowhere yeah, it's, near it's, the it's same. Not, it's not the it's same not as anything in person. Yeah. But but how weird is it though? Simple that... concept. It's definitely fun with friends. How weird is it, though, that the whole game feels like it's literally on a PC but somehow on your Switch? Like, the UI of all the... Like, the way it pings servers, the way it shows statuses, the way it shows lobbies, the way you come and go. The fact that there are social media links that go to nowhere because the browser literally isn't a thing on the Switch. It's just like, can't open that. It's really weird how, like, PC-ish it feels. I mean, it works fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just I'm not used to seeing that much of a PC-first experience or, like, a PC-oriented experience on a console game. Like, it kind of put... I, it threw me off for a minute there. Matches of the game and split screen on just the Switch screen work really well, like more, like a lot better than you would expect. Mm-hmm. But the menus look so tiny for that reason yeah. because it looks yeah. like a PC. Like it's, it's just yeah, the text is an, so it's tiny. A weird, it's a weird. You really design have to like choice. like lean in, and then you're like, okay, cool. Now the game is starting. It it looks perfectly fine now. Yeah, I mean, I I partly get why they're doing it because you know the game has cross platform play, which is a big thing. They're adding cross platform party play later this year, so you can actually make a group of friends regardless of what system you're on and go kick some soccer balls around together or drive some soccer balls around together. But so that's probably why it looks like that. But it's just it's a very unusual choice. I will give them that. Um, but yeah, it it is kind of hard to describe. But I think. Yeah, the only other thing that you just have to get used to is like the the cars that I feel handle very very nicely. It's like 
kind of arcadey, but the only thing that you have to, I guess, wrap your head around the most is probably just the physics of the ball itself. Like, yeah. whenever you, like, it's just, it's more floaty than you think, but it's also not as floaty as you think. It's really weird because you'll want to time yourself so as the ball is falling down, like, all right, I want to get in there and use my jumping action to, like, hit it into the goal, but it just happens to fall down a lot slower than you remember, and then you just drive past it, and you have to turn back. Which and... is where the drift button comes in that you just no, discovered. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but, I mean, regardless, like, it's just the ball physics are, are weird. They're not bad. It's just not unlike any ball physics I've ever experienced. I think so it part just... of it's supposed to be because of the, the pseudo-gravity situation, because, like, you can drive up walls, you, you can, can flip off things, you can drive on the ceilings. Like, it's like a weighted beach ball is what the soccer ball feels like. And I suspect that's partly because they're trying to mirror the gravity of the fact or lack of gravity that you can drive anywhere you want. But yeah, it is. I agree. And I think that, to me, at least partly contributes to there is a learning curve with these controls. Yep. Like we're both saying we suck. It's because there's a learn. Like it's very easy to pick up and play. Very easy. But to actually get good is very not. Easy. Yeah. One of the first <laughs> things that a lot of people always ask when I'm playing it with them that haven't played it before is like, like I can't find the ball. So I tell them to press X because... You could toggle between a camera that always locks onto the ball or one that just goes on like a behind over the yeah, behind be, uh, behind perspective behind the car perspective. Yeah, a standard racing game perspective yeah. or one where it's or locks, ball locks, yeah, yeah, like logs locks to the ball. <laughs> yeah, no one like, can talk. <laughs> Why do we do a podcast if we can't talk? Yeah, and I, know, I feel like playing with the camera locked onto the ball is probably a lot better just feels better that's why i found too and i thought i was weird so i yeah i much prefer having the camera locked the ball sometimes i get confused where my car like if i'm which way i'm turning because like the ball's over here so i'll go left but the, the yeah, camera's actually the other way around yeah so if, if you're driving towards the screen yeah like it gets a little wonky. yeah it, it everything's kind of inverted so you have to keep so that i think in mind. they designed it as something you use in limited use but i found at least as a beginner that's not very good i tend to use that more and then i always fall back to regular view i imagine i'll fall back to regular view as i get used to the mechanics more but yeah but getting used to it takes a long time is what i'm saying so but yeah it, it is i mean like it is really fun <laughs> like if you're the right if you're playing in the right conditions it's really really fun like for you that means probably playing local for me, that means just having people with good internet connections where you're actually playing back. Because there, there have been instances where I've been paired into a game and people just... It seems like you just come and go as you please. Like you just disconnect and whatever, and then the car just sits there. So that that's kind of a bummer. But yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a fun game. It just it has nuances I did not expect from something that had this much like buzz behind it. Yep. Very fun, though, when it does work. And one thing to note is unlike most games on Switch... They're updating this pretty significantly going forward. Like in March or April sometime, they're actually completely changing how the game runs on Switch. There will now be two different performance modes on Switch that you can choose between. Like right now, I think it's 720, 30 frames. But going forward, you can either play in what's called performance mode, which will be 900p docked or 720p handheld at 60 frames per second. But there will be some resolution scaling going on. Or you can play natively in quality mode at 1080p docked and 720p handheld at only 30 frames per second, but they will add visual effects and some other stuff to kind of make up for the slower frame rate. So, regardless of how you want to play, you have options. And it's just cool to see Psionics actually like come in after the game's been on Switch, after it's done quite well on Switch, and not just put new content to keep it on par with the other systems, but actually change how it runs on Switch, better it even though... I don't know if anyone necessarily needed it to be better. I'm sure someone's like, I wish it did this, but this 
it wasn't hindering the game's sales, and yet they're coming in and doing it anyway. So that's really good community, like Rocket League community support they're doing, which is cool to see. Yep. But but yeah, the game I think um, I'd recommend it. I would it's recommend a- it, but you just be warned you're not going to be good when you start. Yeah, it's a game. I, I feel <laughs> that's every, why I'm so hesitant. It's a game I feel everyone should say, but I feel it's one of the few multiplayer games where I'm not overly excited to play. I'm just like I'm always down for it, but. Yeah, it's not you're like, not going to initiate it, but you're happy to do it It's not like, like yeah, let's play Craw or something. Like, let's play Rocket. Like, mm, all right. Yeah. I mean, it is, yeah. It's also masquerading very well as not being a sports game, but it's through and through how you expect a sports game to be. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's like, it's like if it's the Madden of games where you drive cars with soccer balls into, it's the FIFA of games where you drive cars with soccer balls up walls. Like, it kind of has that sort of feel. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but there's a lot of variety in it for those who uh, want it. There's a ton of different modes, very much like uh, Splatoon, where there's different variants on the same basic theme of, you know, spraying ink on the ground. In this case, it's getting a ball on the goal, but there's things where, like the levels drop out, or like there's all sorts of different conditions, and there's also a ton of different stadiums that have different, some have like crowds, some don't, some are treated like real sports, some are more like weird sci-fi. It's, it's very elaborate. Oh, and of course, you customize your car with Nintendo things. Point is, this game has a lot to offer and is like only 20 bucks. So, yeah, if you're willing to put up with difficulty, I would recommend it as well. Yep. Um, funny enough, the other game we're talking about this episode, what I've been playing uh, a little more than Rocket League at least, also started as a download-only release. And Rocket League came out to physical version, and this game comes out to physical version in March, and the game is Max the Curse of Brotherhood. I don't know if you remember, but back in the WiiWare days, there was a platformer called Max and the Magic Marker, and it had players use like the Wii Remote. It's kind of like a giant pen. So you pointed at the screen, and you manipulated the game world. You saw puzzles that way, and it was really cool at the time, and I don't know why I ever like, never got it. Like I was always interested in checking it out. It combined, you know, it's combined platforming with like this unique Wii-first gameplay idea, which at the time, motion controls were still kind of new and different and crazy. I just never got around to it. And I'm sure we all have games like that. Like, I can name a number of games on Switch that I want to play but just haven't gotten around to. But anyway, it turns out that they made a sequel to it a few years ago, The Curse of Brotherhood. And that sequel came to Switch in just the past couple months. And it it must be some sort of universe finally making me follow through on my interest to try this series. Um, The team behind Curse of Brotherhood actually reached out with a review copy for us. So I figured here we are. I have the game finally. I can finally experience it like eight years after the fact or eight years after the idea first bubbled up. And I'm happy to report that it is as neat a concept and execution as it seemed to be when I first saw it on Wii. Now, grant this is the sequel, so it's a little different, but the basic premise is similar to Max and the Magic Marker. It's a 2.5D puzzle platformer, kind of Kirby 64-ish, if you want to make a comparison. Uh, and the marker comes into play to solve puzzles in a variety of different ways. Like you start with relatively simple ability to pull stone columns out of the ground but then it evolves there's seven chapters something like 20-ish levels and as you go through the game you're soon drawing vines you're throwing fireballs you're creating water flows that can move objects kind of like boats like around and uh, ultimately the abilities all sort of tie into the same mechanic of you're manipulating the world by either drawing something or not really drawing something but making a shape either you're raising something out of the ground or you're making a line that makes something go horizontal or Occasionally, you're just like lobbing something, but it's these same basic motions that just are designed to tie into the theme of each world really well. And they only work in certain designated areas in the level. So it's not like you can just uh, randomly be like, I'm going on a waterfall to just plop down the middle of this platforming segment. You can't do that. But like, they just make the puzzles, 
thematically fit well, which is nice. And uh, it also helps that the puzzles themselves are pretty unique and varied in a, like in their own right. Like I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever felt like I was doing the same puzzle twice, at least not yet. And a lot of the more interesting puzzles they take place in sorry, like I was saying, these like preset preset uh, spots where they're indicated on the map. And a lot of these preset spots are almost like little puzzle rooms. So you pass these rooms, and it's relatively smooth sailing to the next of platforming until the next room, and then you kind of go through it again. Although there is some interesting platforming stuff going on in between in that, um, you know, there's collectibles to find, there's enemies to avoid, but they also have these neat chase segments where basically the puzzle song is out the window, and you just need to make it out alive. And you can't really hurt enemies for the most part. It's more like they hurt you. Like Max himself can't, like, whack them or anything. So there's segments where you're literally just trying to outrun an enemy or outrun falling uh falling towers that you're jumping from or outrun boulders or like all sorts of stuff like that and those in particular are kind of nice because they shake up the game a little like you uh like the puzzles tend to be very meticulous and these more action sequences kind of balance that nicely and uh the, the actually the meticulousness of the puzzles to be honest is very nice in and of itself like not to diss that because the puzzles they're not so much like a typical platformer where it's you know, the puzzle's just kind of like, oh, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, like a platform's very simple. Like, you need to go here to do this to trigger that. These are almost, these are almost brain teasers. Like, you are actually manipulating the world in a way to cause one thing to cause another thing to cause another thing versus just like, how do I get out of this spot? Let me try going left. Like, it's not so much about, like, you walk around the world. It's more about manipulating the world to clear a challenge that then lets you proceed, if that makes any sense. So, you're like, you know, manipulating things to dislodge boulders or you're having enemies move in a certain pattern in certain places to then trigger something that then lifts a gate or whatever or lift an object with the boulder to, or with the power to have it do something whatever it may be and if you happen to screw up and die be it in these puzzle rooms or just in general platforming you're basically respawned right where you were or very close to where you were so like no harm no foul for that matter no life system you just kind of work your way through these puzzles these little meticulous puzzles and it's pretty laid back as a result. It's kind of nice. It's like a laid back puzzle platformer, which there's not a lot of, with occasional chase Sounds segments like to shake for it Jason. up. Well, I think, it, it, yeah, I liked it, but I think I think a lot of these design decisions were actually probably made to make it more kid friendly. Perfect I mean, for game, Jason. I, I I am a child at heart, but yeah, the uh, the game's demographic seems to lean, or the game seems to be tar- tailoring to that demographic in some ways. I mean, the basic plot is Max is annoyed about his brother. And his brother ends up falling to a weird purple portal, and then Max like chases after him, and then his brother gets kidnapped. Max has to go rescue him, and then throughout the game, there are like fully animated cutscenes with fully voiced Max, and then Max gives little quips as you do the game and everything. And the whole thing just kind of, kind of feels like an animated movie, sort of. Like even when you're doing the gameplay Man, stuff, this game could not have been made for you more, any more than it already has. That's not just being sarcastic, but no, I, I'm just I'm just describing the game. But no, um, no, what I was gonna say is it did give kind of an animated vibe to me because not just the, through the cutscenes and the voice acting, but even just as you're platforming or as you're solving puzzles, there's just like this f- cinematic element, you know. Like there's some puzzles that when you complete, it triggers a series of events that then cause you to do slow motion quick time events, or you're just navigating through levels and the camera spins and pans and changes angles and sweeps in and sweeps out. Or it adds like a depth depth of field effect. Actually, looks really nice. Like there's just because there's like this kids animated movie vibe doesn't mean it's bad and doesn't mean it's easy and doesn't mean anything like that. It's just kind of the the aesthetic of it. Because difficulty wise, 
some of the puzzles can actually get pretty tricky like especially if you're going for all the collectibles there's 75 uh mustacho eyeballs that's that's an actual thing and trickier hidden uh, amulet amulet pieces and together you i don't think you need all the amulet pieces actually those, those might just be optional but you do need the uh, the eyeballs which you find as you get around but some of them are easier to get than others some of them require more puzzles than others so if you want to really go for everything there's trickier puzzles for that and even just in the general platforming some of them are more tricky but um the one last thing i should probably touch on is actually the controls um I somehow didn't mention it at all when talking about the marker, but this is actually one of the first Switch games I've played with touchscreen support for actual gameplay. I can't think of another Switch game that has done that that I've played, and it, it makes sense because, you know, you have a marker, so you would think you would draw it onto the screen. So you trigger it, the marker, by literally just pressing one of the preset spots, and then you just kind of drag where you need to go or where you need the thing to go. And it works pretty well, but there have been instances that it didn't really feel as precise as it could be i mean what happened to me from time to time is it lose my touch before i finish performing my marker action so i'd have basically like a half of what i need and i have to destroy it and restart it but again that was not every time it was kind of sporadic but uh alternatively what i found to be more useful or more um reliable was the standard control option where if you hold the shoulder button i think it's zr and then you press a or y you can just wiggle the control stick where you need the thing to go and it'll draw it. So that, that was a little more precise. I ended up using that more, but having the touch option is kind of nice, especially if you're playing in handheld mode. And really, because both are available, it's not like this is a deal breaker or anything. In fact, the only other thing that was kind of a little questionable, but also not exactly a deal breaker, is um, there were some frame rate drops, but that I blame more on Unity Engine than on the game itself, because almost every Unity game seems to have that issue. So. It is what it is, but but really overall, just a fun little puzzle platformer. Like uh, the entire thing, like I said, it's kind of laid back, kind of like a almost chill in a way. Um, even when the puzzles prove tough or the platform gets more intense, it never feels like it's like intense. It's just it's it's just I don't know, it's just fun. So um, yeah, if that sounds appealing, then I recommend checking it out. The game's fifteen bucks on the eShop currently. Production values in of themselves kind of justify the price, but beyond that, you're getting. You know, twilight levels with some clever little puzzle rooms and some interesting stuff that strings them together, essentially. So yeah, might be worth checking out. And uh, with that, whew, I guess that was, that was an episode right there is what that was. Yeah, one of um, our shorter ones. Nah, it's about average. Two and a half? No. Is that average, isn't it? No, like 212 to 220 is our average. Really? Yeah, if I could pull, like, show you the numbers after this. We're right in line. 212, you say? Or like 210 to 220. But... Don't you worry, because we're going to be back in two weeks doing this all over again. Uh, our next episode is on February 18th with, believe it or not, potentially more news from the financial briefing. The Q&A segment, where Kimishima does the most of his hint dropping and tantalizing tidbits about the future, that transcript goes up sometime between now and our next episode. So if there are any goodies in there, we're going to be discussing them on here. Plus, uh, we'll have other news of note. We'll have impressions of games like Celeste, which is being very... It's very in at the moment, very talked about. Um, All right. So to make sure you – I didn't say it was good. I said it was in and being talked about. So to make sure you find out if it's good or not and don't miss the episode, you can subscribe to us on every podcasting app known to man, basically. We're on iTunes or now called Apple Podcasts, apparently. We're on Google Play. We're on TuneIn, Stitcher, Podcast Act. The list goes on and on. You can also follow us on Twitter at Ram Nintendo if you prefer that. Uh, we are also individually on Twitter, imjsr 7 Angel is Wero, W-E-I-R-O underscore O. And yeah, that pretty much does it. So we'll be back on the 18th. And that was the State of Nintendo. <laughs>